I have absolutely no pleasure in the stimulants in which I sometimes so madly indulge. It has not been in the pursuit of pleasure that I have periled life and reputation and reason. It has been the desperate attempt to escape from torturing memories, from a sense of insupportable loneliness, and a dread of some strange impending doom. Edgar Allan Poe. And with that light intro, hello there and welcome to Bandwidth Coast to Coast. One of the intents I have with this series is to highlight what we take for granted, what structures, economies, influences, etc., that exist within and without each of us, which knowingly or not, are taking an active hand in shaping the emerging world in which we inhabit. An emerging world, or the innumerable behaviors, effects, changes, so on and so on, that are continuously occurring and evolving in every dimension. As we further transform as a species, further augmenting what we're given with genes, with what's built by us, or putting it more succinctly, technology, a few behaviors become strikingly apparent. Our lifestyle has become more sedentary, our pollution has increased exponentially, and the area in which we live has become more and more dependent on environments we control. Environments that are powered more and shaped more by consumer markets. One of the features of a Western consumer society is the consumption of mind-altering substances. Caffeine, sugar, alcohol, tobacco, those are a few common mainstays. However, with numbers that exist at scale, heroin, methamphetamine, cocaine, all add up to a big market, and with time have become mainstays in and of themselves. This is to say nothing of marijuana, and its increasingly legal black market mixed economy and mixed part of society. The substances in my latter grouping have a steady and at times growing demand in spite of their illegality. What behaviors, effects, changes, and sufferings that emerge from this illegality is innumerable. And it's all happening right out in the open, being felt most dangerously right next door to the United States and Mexico where illegal businesses work hard to meet the demands of American consumers. Because, as my guest powerfully puts it, drugs are a part of the modern consumer society we live in. Mexico's drug cartels make billions of dollars a year on illegal drugs, and what emerges out of those dollars is the focus of this episode's interview. My guest is author and journalist Yon Grillo, who spent the past 20 years in Mexico reporting and authoring books on the Latin American cartels. Yon gives some insight into how the hydra of problems with cartels, military, police, government have grown over the years, especially during the escalation of violence in the past 15. He details how this plays out and is felt by a typical person caught or tempted into the drug business. Like just a few days before we recorded this, when Yon had gone down to Jalisco to report on a former governor who was assassinated in the bathroom of a club one of just many of the deaths that are occurring each day because of this violence, though many more of the victims are unknown people. I encourage you to check out any of Yon's books to hear and understand more about those unknown and mostly unfelt individuals who tackle with the reality that our current drug system rigs a laboratory to create. Books like El Narco, Inside Mexico's Criminal Insurgency, which is the base for most of the questions I ask in this interview or gangster warlords, drug dollars, killing fields, and the new politics of Latin America that tells the human stories of those tempted into drug cartels. 
along with his newly released book, Blood, Gun, Money, How America Arms Gangs and Cartels, which just dropped this week. He has a great writing style that you can see shine through a bit when you hear him talk, and I encourage you to pick up any of what he's written to gain more of an understanding on cartels, drugs, and what emerges. All right, you got drums, a promo, and then my interview with Yon Grillo. Thanks for listening. before the episode starts if you'd like to find us on your social media platform of choice sign up for a mailing list to be the first to know about episode drops know about upcoming guests or opportunities to ask questions and provide suggestions please visit us at bandwidthpodcast.com and of course if you like what you hear please follow comment or subscribe to the pod however it is that this is getting to your ears All right. Well, thank you very much uh, for joining me. So just so we have it, would you mind just introducing yourself really quick? Yeah, my name is Yoan Grillo. Uh, I'm a journalist and a writer I'm from the UK originally. I've been in Mexico 20 years. Spent a lot of that time covering drug cartels and cartel violence. Written two books already published, a third book coming out in January about this issue. Excellent. Yeah. Well, thank you for taking the time. I'm uh, extremely excited to talk to you, which is a little, uh, I always, I always find it funny when I say I'm really excited to talk to someone when I know that ha- the topic is going to be heavy, but yeah. I'm very, I'm very excited. Um, yeah. so, so something I ask, you know, kind of as like an aside for all of my guests, the first time they come on. And I was actually thinking about asking you this and I thought about how, uh, given the topic manner that I know we're going to get into, it's a little out of place, but I'm going to do it anyways. Uh, which is what do you like to do that makes you happy? Wow, what I like to do which makes me happy. Um, just a couple of things. Uh, I mean, <laughs> loads of things. One of them I like walking in the countryside. You know, that's that's a pretty that's a pretty old. That makes me happy. It clears my mind. I'm also a big fan of reading books and drinking cups of coffee. <laughs> that sounds great. You sounds know, I, yeah, I, I, yeah, I can vibe with all of that, actually. I, I really enjoy walking in the middle of nowhere or even just walking in my yeah. neighborhood as long as the, I live in Southern California. So the people yeah. that drive here is quite stressful. So I try to take it where it's less people and less cars, but I can definitely vibe with that. Um, yeah. yeah, that's great. Uh, so I uh, I had a feeling that I would, I would get along with you, especially after reading your book, El Narco. Um, I read it. I, I picked it up a while ago and I made sure I finished it before the, the call that we had. And um, I'm sure I'm going to flatter you a bunch with your writing, but I really enjoy your writing style. I wanted to, to say that. Like, Thank you. Yeah, thanks. The way that you, uh, you just, I would say the way you disarm such a chaotic and brutal, like truly brutal um, subject. And then you kind of make it into a human manner, which is really what I appreciated with it. Um, let alone, I really enjoyed your uh, quotes before every uh, uh, chapter and the little sections yeah. that you take out, like the one with from uh, Thomas Hobbes Leviathan. Uh, I yeah. thought that was really great because I've read Leviathan and I, and I was recalling the quote, but it was out of context in the way that you were framing it, um, which I thought was quite amazing. 
Um, and, uh, I'm also a huge fan of the Victor Hugo quote, uh, what's the most powerful thing in the world. And that's an idea whose time has come, which you worked in there as well. So, uh, yeah. you're yeah. writing in general. Yeah. Thanks. I mean, well, I mean, with the, with the writing, um, I try and, you know, it's, it's about communicating, try and tell the stories. Um, you know, a lot of different cultures have different storytelling, you know, ways. I feel that I grew up. Um, with a lot of good storytellers around my friends um, a lot of them you know might have been sitting around smoking hash <laughs> back in those days or or, or or drinking beer in pubs um, there's a lot of good storytellers uh, I think and uh, um, when I would go back I have, I have uh, cousins in, in in the west of Ireland as well uh, and when I went would go back from Mexico and, and my cousin there would take me to the pub and he would say oh he's my cousin you know, he, he's journalist in Mexico and I tell my um, my cousin's stories. He'd, he'd turn to the next guy and, 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 and tell the stories to the next guy in the pub. And the way he the way he told them, the way he kind of refined them and told them, you know, look at this. Um, you know, I feel that, you know, you want to you know, write a book, you want to engage with the reader and try and tell these things. Now, yeah, it's heavy stuff. Uh, I mean, I've been covering, a, a, you know, crazy era of bloodshed in Mexico for the last 20 years. Um, it's, it's, it's been tragic in my humanitarian, humanitarian catastrophe, I'll call it. Um, you know, there's been in the last 12 years, more than 300,000 murders in Mexico officially. We don't know how many of those directly by drug cartels or the security forces fighting drug cartels. You know, there's some estimates it could be two thirds of them, um, that tens of thousands have disappeared. So it's been a very horrific situation, which I found myself covering it covering but uh but still i mean i think it's more criminal when people write about this stuff and make it boring um you know <laughs> some of these things like how can you cover this insane stuff and you've really got to try and bring this stuff home to people um so yeah you know i found myself um, i mean I, you know i came when i first came to mexico which was in the year 2000 um as a 27 year old um young and dumb and, and had kind of, you know, dreams then about fantasies then about Che Guevara and, you know, like military dictatorships and kind of, you know, I've seen the film Salvador by Oliver Stone back in the 1980s about this, played by James Woods, funny enough, this kind of crazy, uh, uh, crazy journalist who's like, you know, kind of crazy drunk journalist covering it. Uh, so I had these kind of weird reference points there. Uh, I mean, found that it all finished and, and very quickly just fell into the idea of the drugs because i grew up in an, in an area in the uk with a lot of drug taking so as a teenager i was around a lot of drugs i saw various friends uh die of heroin overdoses uh so a lot of friends take drugs and go on it's a huge amount of drug culture uh, i mean really 80s 90s was massive era of drug culture in the uk so i kind of grew up around that and so it's kind of for me it was an interesting connection like we grew up around drugs and this countries producing and trafficking drugs and were connected by this issue and then the glamorous story i was always into the kind of mafia and organized crime stuff i have an italian last name which made me when i was a teenager think like i could uh, relate to like mafia crime incorporated stuff um and so i was kind of always i was just always a bit fascinated with by those mafia stories organized crime stories so as well that was something interesting and then you suddenly the the crazy stories of you know of, of these drug traffickers, El Chapo, El Mayo, these, you know, this crazy subculture there. And then I found myself covering something which was really horrific, violent, 
horrible story and a lot of people being hurt very, very badly by this. Um, so, so just been telling me the story and trying to also bring out ways, talk about ways that we can try and get out of this hole. Um, it's very hard. Um, but yeah, a lot, a lot to talk about. Yeah, definitely. And I want to, I want to dive into a lot of that. Uh, I'm not sure. Have you ever heard of the historian, uh, Felipe Fernandez Armesto by chance? I'm not I'm sorry to be ignorant of that. No, yeah. no, it's, it's quite right. I was ignorant to him until I had him on my podcast and then I realized he's a big deal and I was like, Oh shit. Okay. Um, so I didn't know that he was as big of a deal as he is. So it's quite all right. Yeah. The only reason that I, I bring it up is to get to a point that you hit on with culture actually. Um, so I, I'm obsessed with culture. Like I have these obsessions and I'm aware of them. Um, it's probably a, uh, feature of an addictive, an addictive personality to be honest, but I, I harness it in different ways. Right. So I have these obsessions. Um, and one of, yeah, I can uh, see. Uh, that's, that's a me too. A me too. <laughs> I mean, that's a me. I, I'm also very obsessive. Yeah. I get obsessed by stuff as well. So, so um yeah I'm, I'm a, i think it's an addictive personality and i get obsessed by things so i've had various obsessions in my life and yeah the best thing if i can channel if i can have the obsession and my work together at the same time that's the best thing and i, and I had that for, but sometimes unfortunately it changes i get obsessed by different i get distracted by obsessed by stuff that i shouldn't care about yeah um, i have many a late night because of that yeah um. yeah but, but yeah but yeah cold well, we're in a, we're in a moment where we're in a moment where there's a big debate evaluation over culture um, in, in West, in Western society, definitely um, the culture war and all of these things. So yeah, I guess culture is something which is coming up, which is, which is an interesting one. Yeah. Yeah. So, so he says something to me and I, uh, I had this like line of thought that I was asking him these questions and really what I wanted, wanted to do was reframe what a historian is and re- yeah. reframe what history is. Hmm. And he said something to me that, um, I'm going to, I'm going to say it and then I'm going to bracket to a question. Um, and he said something to me. So I said to him and I said, in studying anything in studying your own contemporary time, your own life or the life of, you know, Alexander the great or whatever, you know, historical individual or time period. I said, is there anything more important than culture? Uh, and he said something to me that I want to use to frame this question. He and he says, no, uh, culture is the frame of reference that's the point in which you kind of start with and then you kind of go out from there. And that's one of the things I really appreciated about uh, your book, El Narco, as well as your follow-up uh, one about uh, just the individuals who are in these cartels. Yeah. Um, is you're, you're really kind of telling this, you know, this cultural story of how did this, this come to be and come to emerge. Right. Um, which you say at the end of the book, um, it's really a generational problem. And I think that's a good point to kind of frame this. Um, so the, what, what I want to ask you to kind of start with this is, has the confluence of, you know, culture, just physical geography of where Mexico is located um, and the demand in the economy of drugs really kind of created the conditions in the lab for this violent Mexico? Like going back to, I kind of want to plug in that something else that you say that I think is an excellent point. Um, you know, in, in another life, I went to school and I studied international relations. Um, and when I did my case studies in Latin America, one of the big things that came up was the PRI. And it was, you know, like at that time, it was a transition of the, you know, the PRI kind of allowing the transition to happen maybe. Um, yeah. And this kind of government mon- monopoly that they had, this oligarchy of the PRI kind of went away. Um, and in doing that, it was actually violent under them, but it was controlled violence where after they went away, it was almost like a hydra and chaos. Um, so my question again, just to kind of come back to is the confluence of the culture historically of Mexico, of which they, you know, they insurgents, 
fought the colonial, you know, uh, rule was able to win independence. And then kind of what emerges out of this is this, you know, monopoly on government, which is then almost, it's, I mean, a mafia in all, but name it's in itself. Um, and then that goes away. And then we kind of have here. So is, is it, is this confluence of geographic location being south of the border? Cause you mentioned that too, with, you know, being an easier way to Avenue in than than Columbia as well as the culture. So I think I've exposed enough. Yeah, yeah, sure. So, I mean, on that first point about culture, that's, that's fascinating. Um, but I, I, I perhaps wouldn't put quite as much dominance. I mean, I mean, culture's huge and important, but I don't think it's everything. Um, I think it's. I mean, I, you know, I think culture is one thing. I think economics another thing. I think um, politics or something else. I think you know, there's, there's 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 various factors that come together. Um, I mean, and, and human beings making choices. Um, and so, and so like, you know, you know, whereas the, the, you know, the culture is part of this and the culture is interesting because it's how we, these things are expressed via culture in cultural ways, but it's not, it's not everything. But, um, but answering the question, I, I think so to, to, to describe again, what we're talking about to, to people who might not be that familiar with this. So we've got this situation where you've had this um, escalation of violence in Mexico huge amount of cartel-related violence of the security forces fighting the cartels. A lot of just crazy things happening over here for, particularly for the last 13, 14 years now. Um, um, a big military crackdown against the cartels that happened in 2006. The military is still out there, um, still being, you know, now being you know, extended being out there. Crazy battles that have sometimes involved uh, you know, up, you know, 500 hitmen, if you can call them hitmen, cigarios, 500 armed cartel type guys fighting 2,000 federal police, uh, mass graves with more than 250 bodies, single massacres of 72 people, um, and loads and loads of hits happening all over the place, and just like a lot of crazy things happening over the last few years. Diversification of the cartels into a whole bunch of businesses, oil theft human traffic, human smuggling, uh, people trafficking, sex trafficking, piracy, extortion, massive ways of kidnapping, demonstrations against the insecurity, you know, all kinds of things. So to give some context to this, uh, and, and, and you raise the point which is central in the book, you have this change of power in Mexico. So you have 71 years in Mexico between 1929 and the year 2000, where you have one party controlling the presidency for that whole time. It changes the name, but it's one party. And at 2000, which is the year I arrive in Mexico and begin my investigation is like this year, bang, when this party leaves power. So you have these big hopes in Mexico for democracy, for the free markets, um, really shown by that president who takes power in 2000, Vicente Fox, who's quite known in the United States, a personality he does. He was trolling Trump a lot. But Vicente Fox was a former Coca-Cola executive. Um, this kind of, you know, this, 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 this different style guy, um, you know, character. And this idea of the kind of free markets, the end of that, you know, the good the bad old days are over, good old days are happening. And then that all went bad. And then we're in a place now with, um, you know, a huge amount of violence um, happening kind of stagnation inequality hasn't improved and a lot of you know corruption still horrific and all of these things so 
I think we kind of see this, a perfect storm. So there's kind of, the, in a way, that the, the stars line up for this bad thing to happen. So we see various factors happening that, that, that lead it. So one of them is this end of 71 years of one-party rule and this movement attempt at multi-party democracy. Now, this fits into a bigger global picture, again, you know, 90s, 2000s, this idea that the world is going to all become, everyone's going to become liberal democracies and everyone's going to become free markets. Um, we see this, yeah, end of the Soviet Union, you know, a couple of years before that. We see all of the end of these military dictatorships across Latin America uh, from the 80s and 90s and these idea of these multi-party democracies and this idea also of of free markets taking over. Neoliberalism, if you will. Neoliberalism, the kind of neoliberal period. Um, but the neoliberal economic um, ideas, but also this idea of the kind of liberal project in the sense of, um, you know, free market, uh, of, of democracy, liberal democracy everywhere. And then, and then, you know, a couple of years after that, the idea of even, you know, you should even, you know, go there militarily to, to have liberal democracy. That's the kind of... Um, and then we see during this time, in fact, this dream souring, this kind of international liberal project souring. I think part of that souring was in Latin America, was in the failure of democracies in Latin America. Uh, and, and, and perhaps, you know, people, you know, a lot of people won't see this, but I, I, know I, would, I would argue there's been a, a failure in many ways in, in liberal democracies in Latin America. And now we've seen a step back from that. So we've got um, Venezuela's become authoritarian corrupt authoritarian country, um, it, it, sadly a failed socialist experiment in, or, or, or failed uh, experiment attempt by a government to have socialist inspired reforms there. Um, we have Cuba, which everyone thought, well, Cuba was going to go. Cuba didn't go. Cuba's still got strong uh, control by the Communist Party. Um, we have Nicaragua, which has become an authoritarian country, um, you know, very, you know, which was, you know, quite a popular left-wing revolutionaries back in the in, in the late 70s 80s now authoritarian country honduras um has become an authoritarian country and from the right brazil's elected a right-wing populist um authoritarian with authoritarian tendencies so we kind of got this this step back from it but also in many countries where they still have democracy functioning um basically a big you know these it didn't deliver to what many people, what they wanted in Mexico is a classic example. So the idea that Mexico would open up and the free market. So after you had NAFTA in 94, North American Free Trade Agreement, and this idea that you know, Mexico is gonna really improve and would it you know, end up with Mexico on level with the United States, it would kind of level the playing field with this economic union or economic free trade area, that, that didn't happen. You know, what, so what we got is things like in, in Mexico, uh, and I did a story about this a couple of years ago. I went to the factory over in uh, one of the car factories. And, and, you know, whereas, you know, work car workers in Detroit are getting like, you know, what is it, $25, $30 an hour. You get people working in car factories in Mexico who are getting, you know, realistically something like $10 a day. That's what they get. So that's, that's what NAFTA did not level this thing up. You know, right. you still, you know, what do they call them? Macchia. Uh, yeah, Macchiadora to the yeah, uh, assembly uh, plants. Assembly plus, yeah. yeah Full on car factories in a bunch of the, the country who are some of them you know, an hour away from Mexico City. 
so anyway, so you got this. Basically, this, this didn't happen. So, so in Mexico, um, you had the rise. Now, at the same time as this move to democracy, this attempt at democracy, you had the movement in the drug roots. So whereas Colombia initially used to come straight from, whereas cocaine used to come straight from Colombia to the United States, people used to get in planes and fly cocaine right over the Caribbean into Miami, into Florida, all the stories back in the 70s and the 80s where people would like fly the cocaine cowboys stories. People would fly there, drop some cocaine. You know, there were stories uh, from one uh, a priest preaching about drugs. <laughs> it's a great story if it, if, if it would, you know, see how true it is. But some some priest preaching about drugs in Florida, and then some cocaine was like dropped from the sky. <laughs> you know, these are the cocaine cowboy stories, you know. But you know, it used to be like easy. It was wide open. You just get in a plane from Colombia, fly to Florida. Then you had the whole thing there of, you know, under Reagan, the war on drugs, South Florida task force, block that, you know, he's got quite a tight corridor of drug trafficking you can block. So block that there. And then the drug traffickers just shifted and then you had Mexico. So you had what's called the Mexican trampoline, make deals with the Mexicans. There's always big deals being made with Mex between Mexicans and Colombians going back to the late seventies actually. But these were kind of then in increased and then like bouncing on the Mexican trampoline, bouncing the drugs into the United States. So suddenly all the cocaine money starts to go into Mexico. Now what you get is actually this um, change where who makes the big money out of cocaine. So cocaine is a massively profitable business. I mean, that's, that's one of these things in the realities of the drugs, drug war, the war on drugs, the, the world of drug trafficking, cocaine makes huge amounts of money. So like to make cocaine in Colombia, I mean, first of all, you have these campesinos, peasant farmers who are growing, cultivating the coca bush. And then they go through this process and they go through this first process and they have this like, bad bunch of leaves and that bunch of leaves is worth like $80. Now that bunch of leaves gets put through another kind of more sophisticated chemical process. Um, and you get the kilo brick of cocaine and that kilo brick of cocaine is worth you know, it depends where in Colombia you buy it. If you go right into the jungle, you're going to get it cheaper than if you buy it in the city. So between like, you know, one to $2,000 for that kilo brick of cocaine. Then that kilo brick, a couple of thousand dollars in the city, they're going to take it to Mexico. By the time it hits the US, it's like $30,000. So who's making that big markup? Really, the big markup is the Mexicans, who are the distributors. It's a bit like a DEA guy said to me, he said, like, who in these kind of economies makes the big money? Is it the person who, who grows the vegetables or is it the Walmart who sells them? And it's the Walmart, <laughs> you know, the, the, it's the distributor who ends up making the money in this kind of economy. So then it comes up and then it, you know, gets in, in the United States and you've got big markups in the US when they, you know, you take a kilo, goes through a few different um, stages and then people might have it in a nightclub, cut it up with crap and sell it to people who are taking a line of cocaine or, or cook it into crack cocaine. And then it, you know, it gets got, got more money there, but still the Mexican cartels end up being the ones who make the really big wholesale trafficking money. So all of these billions and billions of dollars just get pumped into Mexico at this time. And then you have crystal meth. So then like in, you have in the US, there's big growth in people taking crystal meth. 
2005 in the United States Combat um, Methamphetamine Act, which makes it harder because it was a lot of biker gangs cooking up meth, you know, typically in the US, makes it harder. So it goes to Mexico, a bunch of Mexican cartels running super labs, importing the raw ingredients from China and from all over the world, cooking up meth and taking it to the United States, massive money in crystal meth as well. And then you've got massive growth of opiate addiction in the United States. And the roots change in that as well, whereas traditionally you had like, you know, you know coke, uh, heroin coming over the Atlantic. It all becomes very much Mexican heroin. And then more recently, Mexican heroin laced with fentanyl. Often that's a very, it's a big seller now. So all of these things mean that Mexico, there's loads and loads of money being pumped into drugs. So you've got this change of the political system and then vast amounts of money being pumped into these organizations. And then what you get is you get this change. So whereas you've always had corruption, but the corrupt deal before was that the Mexican government, the police are the ones who are the top dogs who kind of control the, the cartels. So you've got kind of stories going back to like the, uh, you know, this idea of, of, of somebody, a drug trafficker, who is, who is moving dope over the border and has to pay the police off. But the police are the top dogs in this deal. I think a story is really, an anecdote which really illustrates that is going back to the uh, late 70s, early 80s, there was a, a, a drug trafficker called, called Pablo Acosta. And he described to, to a journalist, Terence Popper, about when he first became head of the plaza um, in a place called Ojinaga, Chihuahua, taking over to Texas, to the Big Bend National Park. And he went to the police in Chihuahua State to negotiate becoming head of the plaza. And when he arrived there, the police were like, you know, what do you want? And he's like, oh, I want to be head of the plaza. And they're like, come with us. Took him into a room, two days of torture, you know, like water with like chili, lace with chili up his nose, electric shocks on his nuts kind of two days of like brutal torture. And then at the end of it, we're like, well done. You got the job. <laughs> so, so it's kind of like this idea that like you've got the, you know, the, the police, the ones in control, you know, you can run drugs, but they're the ones who are gonna give you the license to. So you have this relationship between drug traffickers working in, in or you know, the, 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 the police wants to get their money and then they can take down if, and take you down at the end so that it makes them look good or you don't get too big for your boots or take down somebody who's not paying their bills to the police. But then what you start to get in the 20 hundreds is you start to get these drug cartels forming their own paramilitary wings. So it becomes paramilitary organized crime. And you get things like the Setas cartel who are ex-military or military guys, active military guys who defect to the cartel and then recruit more and they start bringing military tactics. So it's no longer you know, a guy with a shaved head and tattoos and a, and a pistol. It's like a guy with, who's got military training with active military experience um, with um, a, an automatic rifle, um, with a metal helmet, with a bulletproof vest, with, with, with a radio and a whole bunch of them organizing and starting to fight amongst themselves. And then they're still using the police, but then it starts to change a bit like, the police start to say, well, rather than them work for the police, the police work for them. So it's like the, a change in the power, weird change in the power structure. So you get this kind of thing of them killing loads of police, 
but often you get things where you have two cartels fighting over these cities and then knocking down police, killing police to try and control the police. Um, and then you get police forces fighting amongst themselves. And this is kind of weird stuff. I and mean, I was covering this as a young reporter. I was working for the Houston Chronicle and covering this as it gradually developed, you know, so I can look back on it now, these, these things are covered. But back in 2005, I was in Nuevo Laredo, Texas. No, sorry, Nuevo Laredo, Mexico, away from Laredo, Texas. I was about to leave the city and suddenly there's a fight between the federal police and the municipal police, a shootout. That this big firefight amongst these two police forces in the city and like a rundown and cover this, cover this thing. Yeah. So like you have um, the, these kind of crazy things happening, and then the cartels among this um, become, you know, what I call gangster warlords, call it paramilitary organized crime, um, where they're, you know, and then you see these, these crazy things happening, you know, more recently um, in 2019, where you have the army attempt to arrest one of the sons of El Chapo and you have what according to some well I mean the military some military sources claim with 700 to 800 gunmen rising up blockading the city uh, and the military event you know to, to 250 soldiers the police just melting down this kind of crazy situation and these kind of things which are pretty like you know, out there to you know that these are made you know, these pretty incredible things are happening in the country so so yeah basically like i would say there's the kind of perfect storm and then we we run into this conflict and chaos yeah and it's um i i one of my professors in college was um from peru so we, we spent a lot of time i had two two different uh courses and we we studied in uh latin america and, and I, you can't really study latin american economies without talking about drugs um so i had some understanding of kind of the hydra that the the cartels yeah. Are there, but one of the things that that I thought your book really well illustrated, as well as your writing, is kind of, um, I guess, uh, from an American standpoint, seeing police that are so involved, like uh, so, like a, a plaza is like a geographical region of r- drug running, right? Um, so why why would the the police be involved in that? And from an American perspective, that seems rather foreign. Um, but something that you mentioned in there is that the police, you know, like in the seventy years of this the PRI rule we're doing uh, for lack of a better word, shady shit all the time. Right. So for them to transition to saying like, well, instead of it being a governmental mob boss, um, I'm now doing it for a uh, cartel mob boss and I'm getting paid more. Um, You know, the transitions, it it didn't, it doesn't seem that much. And it felt reading your book and kind of reflecting back on some of the, the studies I've done, it made me feel a lot more like they, you know, these neoliberal economic policies didn't really understand what they were getting involved in, right? That there was a lot more going on with the government and the society of Mexico that simply saying there's a new, you know, a new leaf and we're going to have democracy. Well, you're not, you're not, you're, you're, you're ignoring the fact that there's pressures from the geographical location of it's a lot easier to run drugs here, um, as well as kind of the legacy of, well, this corrupt organization has been in place for so long. So just to simply say, you know, Vicente Fox coming in and saying, you know, we're going to change things isn't going to change the fact that this is why I brought up culture, the culture in which that there's this decentralized system of corruption. And now you're just injecting loads of money into it with what you said, like thousand percent profit, you know, increases. Like it's, it's just an, an immense amount of money coming into it, which is now creating this fractured system of, of paramilitary groups. Like we said about the Zetas and, 
which many of which were probably even trained by the U.S. forces. Um, so they have guerrilla tactics, and then it just kind of throw more money into it. And the fact that uh, you know you're going to get a lot more money from a drug runner than you are from the good guys, right? Yeah. So 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 you got like uh, I think I think one of the interesting things um, uh, to to look at this. One of the interesting ways to look at this is you have with this change to in the neoliberalism, but there was, it was really the change from the, the kind of closed societies or, or the more authoritarian societies of the late 20th century and much of Latin America, or the mid 20th century and much of Latin America. And this kind of move out, you, the kind of project had, had, had the economic side and it had the political side. So the economic side, the idea is you'd have, you know, free markets, globalization, open your borders, you know, lower taxes, lower government spending, all of these kind of things. And the political side was have um, elections that, um, that are credible elections and, you know, voting and they're not, you know, you're just reading the elections. And that was the kind of two parts of the big project put forward in, in an international way. And like in terms of the economic side, you had like NAFTA and the World Trade Organization and all of these kind of things pushing the economic side. And on the political side, you had you know, you had thing. You know, this is a, is the American political project, but also, um, you know, United Nations to an extent, and then these things like you know Jimmy Carter and stuff going around there, supporting election, election monitored the idea of, of democracy. What this missed though was a third side, which was the rule of law. So, one of the things about Latin America generally, I think, on, on, on where we're at now in Latin America, so. The big problem is, is not only in Mexico, you've also got a real big problem of criminal violence in a whole bunch of countries in Latin America and the Caribbean in a massive way. Uh, you know, Mexico, El Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala, Colombia, Venezuela, Brazil, Jamaica, Trinidad. You know, all these countries you're seeing criminal violence in all or parts of the country in, in some horrific levels. And you saw this thing where most of the world during the 2000s, the violence was going down and in Latin America, it was going up, you know, went up substantially. Between 2000 and now, you've had more than 2 million murders in Latin America. So more than 2, 2 million murders, this, you know, this is a crazy level. Um, a cocaine fueled Holocaust, this is one of the uh, phrases I've used about this. Um, so, how do you look at rule of law now? When now in Mexico, um, Mexico has been a complicated country since independence. I mean, you could say the fault of, you know, the, the fact that the whole colonial thing, you know, they had, had three hundred years part of the Spanish Empire and so forth. But like since independence, Mexico's been a complicated country. Uh, Mexico independence came from the 1810 to 1821 War of Independence, which itself was a was a very bloody war. So you have a very bloody, violent experience where the country is born. Also, in, you know, in Colombia and stuff, and that that affects things. That's not that long ago. Um, you know, 200 years ago, you have this very bloody war where the country is born. And I would say that Mexico, since independence, has kind of gone through periods of authoritarianism and periods. Uh, which are quite chaotic. It's kind of swung between those two. But the way that in the authoritarian periods, how they kept order, and this went for the dictator Porfirio Diaz, 
and also for the PRI. I believe it was like creating a pyramid of power. So you had at the, the top level, this strong, powerful figure at the, at the top, presidential figure. The PRI managed to have a thing of rotating the presidential figure. So it wasn't one single dictator, but it was a system. And that was kind of one of their, you would call it successes. Um, but also the Porfirio Diaz was one you know, big figure. And then you had different regional leaders who kind of respond. So the kind of governors of states and these kind of regional power brokers who respond and, and hit back to the presidential central figure. And then underneath that, you have at the lower level, well, in Mexico, they, they often refer to as caciques. Now, caciques, you could translate as chieftains. These kind of, you know, like as, as, a, as a, not the greatest translation, but kind of rough translation. These local strongmen in these areas. So like some kind of these chieftains in these towns, in these sectors. And so it's kind of a pyramid of, of power. And that's so it's not really like kind of a, a rule of law kept in a way that it was you know, ever established in a justice system working. It was like, you've got to keep, you know, order in your town, if not, you know, and, you, and you've got to respond to the next guy, the pyramid. So it's like, you know, the, the whole thing, power rises, uh, money rises, and, and also you have bribery through the system. Money rises up like gas and, 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 and power cold comes down like water. And then when we move to multi-party democracy, you then have still the corruption and still a bunch of caciques, but they're like, fighting each other rather than having been controlled in the centralized system and a lot of the narcos fell into the role of playing these local power brokers so who so now you get these weird situations where you have these small towns and the cartel now the, the cartels are now really fragmented you have these big cartels a lot of them being like because the mexican government has hit them the da has hit them but then you you know you you knock down one and then you get a you know you cut off one head and a bunch of other heads spring up, <laughs> go back to the Hydra. And so you have these, um, these, these different, you know, gangster chieftains as well as these gangster warlords in, the, in these like towns and these, you know, and the, these little fragments of cartels and, you know, now all over the place, Caborca, Sonora, um, you know, in um, some, you know, small towns in Guerrero, in, 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 you know, these little places, these, these, these local power brokers who are like between you know, these, these kind of criminal figures, but also kind of the power broker there. And then, you know, sometimes allying with the police, sometimes going against the police and a very chaotic situation across the country. Yeah, that's, yeah. Thank you for, for painting it quite that way. Um, Cause it, it helps understand. You, you, you make it as like a, a quick aside in, in your book, um, but just to kind of fill the glass for anyone who's listening to give a better uh, understanding of this, it's, it's very similar in ways, there's a lot more complexities here, um, to kind of the Iraq war, where you go in there, there's a big figurehead of Saddam Hussein, who is in no means somebody that we should rationalize as doing anything other than keeping things stable. Stable doesn't mean safe, but he's keeping things stable, right? Um, and then you go in there, you knock him out, and all of a sudden, all these cultural complexities that were being stamped out, which you can go to empires back throughout time, and this is always what ends up happening. Once I mean, the whole of Europe after the Roman Empire is just a case example of this: is you take out the biggest, you know, guy in the block whose whole purpose of being there, or even 
I mean, you can even, you know, point to uh, the British Empire after uh, World War II. Um, you know, you take out this central force that is uh, keeping things in place. So in, you know, Iraq, you take out Saddam Hussein, all of a sudden, all these cultural fragmentations of, you know, uh, Sunni and Shia and Bath and all of these kind of spring up. And now all of a sudden you don't have anything to keep it in check because there was an unwritten system that was there keeping everything afloat um, where now that system is, is now gone awry. But in a lot of ways they're saying, well, let's, let's hack it in a way because you're used to it and let's keep rule of law, which the rule of law piece I think is interesting. I, I, I hadn't quite thought of it in that way, the way you drew it directly. Yeah, I mean, so so yeah, so talking about the the some of the Iraq uh, comparisons, and some of them you know work, and some of them don't. But like, there definitely some. I mean, also you had in Iraq the debathification. Right. So you had like when you went in there and and you know get rid of all the people who were Bathists out of the government, and then they become the rebels. And you saw things like in Ciudad Juarez, where there was an attempt by the mayor was like, hey, the whole police force are corrupt. They're all narco's. We're going to fire them all, fire all the police, and get some new guys in there. So you fire all of these corrupt narco police, and then they immediately start, you know, shaking down, kidnapping, you know, doing a bunch of crazy stuff. So you, you had elements of that as well, where the attempt to attempts to try and, you know, when they have an attempt to try and clean out the narcos from these places, um, you know, can go wrong because of that. Yeah, and, and I think you even point out that it got considerably more violent because of the fact that they essentially didn't have anything to lose at that point, right? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, suddenly you've got like, you know, a bunch of, I mean, police who are already used to shaking people down, doing a bunch of dodgy stuff. And then they're suddenly like, fire, okay, now what do we do now? Okay, we just, just we've got to get some money. They become, you know, they, they, they become part of the, you know, they're already part of, you know, the structure of the Juarez cartel, but they've become more active uh, on the street, you know, parts of it. So yeah, uh, I mean, you know, crazy stuff. And, and, and these, I mean, Ciudad Juarez, which is one of the, has been the most murderous city of this um, over a period. I mean, for, it's not right now, but it was for, between 2008 and 2011, there were 9,000 murders in Ciudad Juarez. So that was actually the kind of bloodiest single battleground of, of this whole conflict over, over the last 20 years. It's less than a million people too, right? There's not... Yeah, 1.3 million. Okay, so it's about a million, okay. Yeah, 1.3 million, the, the, the Ciudad Juarez greater area. But so, so, I mean, it was, for a time, it was the highest homicide per capita in the world, Ciudad Juarez. Um, and I mean, I think right now, actually, it might be Tijuana, might be the highest uh, murder per capita in the world. Um, so, so, yeah, so you had these kind of, I mean, I was covering it back then, running around doing the crime beat, and it would be, it'd be crazy. You'd have so much stuff in single days like murders happening here murders happening there places being you know shops being burned down shootouts breaking out all of these things popping off around the city um and in that case you had um you had the juarez cartel um which was uh, run by carrillo fuentes the time by called vicente carrillo fuentes but also had was also linked to the to all these corrupt police, was also linked to this uh, cross national street gang called the Barrio Azteca, which began in prisons in Texas and then really you know started becoming a big force south of the border. You had them on one side, and you had the Sinaloa cartel on the other side, 
Chapo Guzman, um, Miles Ambala, these figures, and also linked to these local street gangs, recruiting local street gangs, and linked also linked to a bunch of corrupt security forces, and maybe more like federal security forces on the other. So these big clash between these big groups, but also these you know subgroups of them. And so the street gangs, because they were pitted against each other, they became really on the front line. Um, and you know, I remember people there talking about we'd have in these neighbourhoods, you know, thirty kids who would hang out in the corner and be the local, you know, what happy the local gang involved in you know, in petty stuff for a long time, suddenly getting brought into this cartel war, and then you know, people heard the, the phrase a couple of times. They said they'd be like wiped out like cockroaches. You know, it was, it was, you know, this idea they were just like exterminated. I mean, kids were just exterminated by these forces. And, you know, you had these, you know, horrific massacres where they go into houses of teenagers and shoot them down. And basically all these kids, you know, all these kids have been a local gang, either like dead in prison or run. Um, so the, the murder rates, if the murder rates in the city was the murder, most, the most murderous in the world, in these particular neighbor, particular neighborhoods, among these particular groups, it was off the charts. So being like a young, um, you know, person, a young man, um, boy, teenager in Ciudad Juarez in one of these neighborhoods, in around one of these gang environments, then was was just like a, you know, horrific, you know, catastrophic time. Yeah, and yeah, there's a couple of points. Uh, I feel like you have a penchant for economics because I do, and I, it shows a little bit in your books. Yeah, um, I, try, I try. I wouldn't say I've really got economics, but I try and uh, get into it. Yeah. It, it, it well, it, it reads well. Um, one of the things that struck me is, and I'll tie it in now, is there is, uh, how can I put this? Um, there is an economy for violence. There's an economy for drug running. There's an economy for uh, informing and things like that. But there's also an economy for murder. Yeah. That was one of the things you say that there's like a flat rate that's been, you know, market forces have said there's a flat rate. I think it was like 80, it comes out to like 85 US dollars for a murder, if I'm getting that right. And, you know, another flat rate for, you know, running dope and another, and then it goes up from there as far as, you know, the, the grade of narcotic. Um, and that I'm assuming that obviously has a, a part to play in how this violence got out of hand. Yeah. I mean, it, it's one of the, I mean, tragic things, this incredible things. So if you go back in Mexico and look at the paid assassins going back to the 1980s, and there's a book by a guy who's actually a paid assassin um, who wrote a book called Lo Negro del Negro. Um, and he um, had, a, he was a Spanish, from a Spanish immigrant family, had a university degree, and was this kind of like paid assassin of kind of, go in the black of night with a pistol and kind of, you know, like a, you know, a trigger man, you know, the kind of more glamorous kind of idea. And then you had this move down and, and this was really, really, this was transported over from Colombia, this idea of the sicario. So the sicario is an idea and a concept, you know, came back in Colombia. There's some stories that is actually invented by an Israeli operative um, going back in, in a Medellin cartel, going back in the, in the 80s in, in Colombia. But this idea of like you don't need to pay a lot of money in these countries in these areas you can recruit kids from the barrios um and you know you can recruit them and pay them a small amount of money now it's not only about 
the, the fact you can pay them very low because they're poor, because you know there's very bad economic conditions in these places, and there's neighbourhoods without you know running water, without paved streets. It's also, I think, a certain sense of purpose, sense of power you can give. You know, why do kids respond uh, to this? Um, and that became so. So in, in Medellin, they began doing that recruiting these armies of these. You know, and, and Pablo Escobar would recruit these armies of kids and. And uh, at times he'd pay them for every policeman they killed when he had, was fighting with, with, with the government. Uh, and then that you know, went to Mexico. So you, you sort of change in language in Mexico from gatillero to sicario or pistolero to sicario. And the songs about them, I mean, it's the culture, the songs in these narco corridos, in these kind of films. And, and, um, and, and like in Ciudad Juarez, where you had these very poor neighborhoods um, and you had a lot of kids growing up in particularly bad circumstances where they'd come from families that had immigrated from the countryside to the cities where their mums often would work in the factories, going back to this NAFTA thing. So they'd go there these, often the, the, the maquilladoras would prefer to hire women than men, pay them less and, 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 and various. So, so some of you'd have the hire the mums, some of the dads, they would not be able to get to work and you'd have more family breakup dads immigrated to the United States, sometimes women working in the sex industry in the border cities, there's big sex industries right across the you know, south, southern Mexican border. So kids growing up in this area, sometimes with broken, you know, single, single mums, sometimes with dads, she's also working long hours or away, you know, immigrating in the United States. So then they go on the street. Um, you've got, you know, often dirt streets, um, very little resources given there. So they find the gangs as, as places to find company, to find, um, you know, Community. A whole bunch of, sorry? Community. Community, yeah, yeah. I mean, a whole bunch of reasons why human beings like to be other humans. I mean, our, being a, in, individuals is not our natural form. Our natural form is to be, was to be in hunter-gatherer bands. So I, I, I feel to an, to an extent that creating gangs is quite natural. And the gang, if you look at the, a lot of the size of, um, street gang cells they're often um, you know 30 to 100 people so it's often often that kind of what hunter gatherer bands are that's a spot I never knew that that's fascinating yeah and you see that I mean, you look at that I mean anything you know why do people form firms of hooligans or frat you know fraternities in college these kind of groups that you know so we will find company there but then cartels recruit these kids so cartels go to them uh, and cartels say to a you know, kid who's 13 14 sometimes younger, 12, um, but go from, you know, say to them, okay, you know, you want to make some money. We're going to give you a cell phone. You stand on the corner. I'm going to give you 50 bucks a week. So, you know, we don't need to give you a lot of money. I'll give you 50 bucks a week. That's a lot more money than, than you've got. You know, it's more money than the, than the other kids your friends have got. I'll give you 50 bucks a week, sit there in the corner. And any time that any car passes, you call us or you send a message. And, and those streets, like hawks, spotters, they're called halcones, hawks. And it's interesting, I've, I've been with police tapping into their radios, you hear them talking. And, and you know, they, they sit there and they'll talk and tell, you know, give the message to the cartel boss, this is what's happening, this is, you know, who's passing in, in the area. So you have these halcones on the street corners reporting and, and, and then they're recruited to kill. And then it's tragic the low level that they pay people to commit murder. So, you know, this is 10 years ago. They would pay like a thousand pesos 
to commit murder. Since then, I found people in Central America who committed murders for even less, $45. Um, or, and people who commit murders actually for free um, in various places, just, just to try, as a young teenager who wants to prove himself, just like, yeah, yeah, I'll, kill, I'll, kill, I'll go kill somebody. Yeah, who do you want? Oh, just to prove himself, to try and, um, and, and you know, they had that as rituals in, in, in gangs to recruit them into gangs, you know, go out and commit a murder or go out and commit several murders before we let you come in the gang. So you get really this um, cheapening of life. And, uh, and one of the things, you know, I, I talked to a lot of people who've done this. A lot of, I've talked to them, I've talked to teenagers who've committed these murders and I've talked to them when they're older and, they, and they've committed these murders. And what this does to them, how this, you know, hardens them. You know, I remember being, this is going back a bunch of years, being in a youth prison in Ciudad Juarez and talking to a 14 year old then who'd already committed double murder. And then what does that mean to you? I mean, like he had a thousand yard stare. You know, he, had, he looked like a Vietnam vet and he was 14. Um, or, or it's weird, you talk to some of these kids who, who are like, on one side, they're kids, like you could be talking to, talking to my nephew back home, 15 year old kid. And then they're also, but they're seasoned murderers. But then that, what, that, what does that do to society? Then you have school teachers who are teaching a class where there's kids in their class. And the kid says, no, profe, if you give me a bad grade, I'm gonna kill you. Then what's the school teacher gonna do and react to that? Um, so then this, this really perpetrates and changes society. Um, when you have these um, people recruited in, in, into killing and, and murder being so cheap, and then you have a market for murder. So then, and you have murder being committed. So, I mean, one of the complicated things to understand the Mexico's drug war, the Mexican drug, drug war, you know, as, as it can be called, is that it's very hard, you know, there's so many murders happening. You don't know how many were directly caused by a cartel or how many are just, somebody murdering somebody and because you get so much killing happening and then people killing for money so then they can you know once you've killed 25 people for money and then somebody pisses you off you can just kill them and get away with it they do that as well now there was some crazy numbers i was looking at the other day there's a study about the impunity in mexico for murder and they found that of I mean, last year there was like 34,500 murders in Mexico. And compared to that, there was only about 10% the number of that where you had people sentenced for murders. So they consider that an impunity rate overall in the country of 90%. But in one state, or in a couple of states, it was like 98, 99%. 99% impunity rate for murder means that if you kill somebody, there's about one in a hundred chance you're going to get caught. So imagine that, you know, like in, in the US, when in the US it varies, but in some communities in the US, it might be an 80, 90% clear up rate for murders. So, you know, people don't commit murder because you think, you know, if I kill somebody, I'll go to jail. If you kill two, three people, you've got, you know, very, very high chance to go to jail. If in, in these places you think, well, if I kill somebody, I've got a, you know, only a 1% chance of going to jail then what's there to stop it? And, and also people, you get people who are used to killing for money. So you have somebody, you know, you have situations and some of these guys, and I talked to, to I interviewed a guy in Mexico City, 
who said he would do hits, but it was more like, it wasn't cartel stuff. It was more like private stuff. Um, somebody owes somebody money and they're really pissed off. It's like, okay, I'm going to go and take a contract out on this guy. Um, you know, somebody's, you know, some jealous thing, but you can pay somebody else to go and kill that person for you. So then you get this use of killing, the use of murder really filtering down. And then a situation of just impunity and murder happening. At the same time, the cartels are still carrying out all this murder. And the security forces themselves are sometimes working with the cartels or sometimes just, you know, like then you have also soldiers, police who are assigned to fight cartels and might go into somewhere and just themselves just carry out a bunch of extrajudicial extra killings. I mean, often their techniques are they go into a neighborhood and they're told to try and clean the neighborhood, pacify the neighborhood, knock out the cartel. So they'll drive to the neighborhood and find the first kids on the corner who they believe could be cartel related. And then they get tortured and disappeared and their bodies dumped and buried. And so abuse is carried out by the security forces. So it's kind of rampant murder everywhere. And that's the situation happening. And then now, I mean, last um, Friday morning, a former governor was assassinated in the state of Jalisco, um, in the city of Puerto Vallarta. Um, he had 15 bodyguards assigned to him. He had, supposedly, according to somebody I talked to, had six bodyguards on duty at the time. And there was talk of, I mean, you know, he was assassinated with them. There was talk about how many hitmen went into the job, to do the job. But if, if they can't protect a former governor with 15 bodyguards assigned to him, how can they protect anybody? You know, how's anybody safe in the country? Um, and that's there. That's the situation. Yeah, that's a that's a really great point. Um, it's really this sounds such a strange thing to say, but I've been, this is kind of like a phrase I've been thinking a lot about, which is the commodification of murder, hmm. right? And if you make murder a commodity, if you make it being able to be sold in such a way, it goes more to the hydra point because it's now decentralized everywhere, you know. And if you have, um, you know, one of the things that I think COVID is really shown shining is, um economic instability if you look at it in a as a sum you're like oh okay it's it's 90 percent or 80 percent or whatever statistic you may look at but if you start realizing and you start breaking it down and you layer geography over it you start seeing that there's actually abject recent regions where you know in the covid example it's spiking out like out like crazy or maybe like certain demographic groups it's spiking like crazy or in what you're saying certain regions in which the the propensity of being able to be easily convinced into taking a murder for $45 or $80, you know, mm. because of the barrio that you're in, because of the situation that you're in, it's going to make these pockets where that is all the more brighter, if you will, of a problem, which then self perpetuates itself. Cause it either, it creates a system in which, you know, this type of murder runs rampant. And like what you said, there's no more, you know, people of adolescent age and the people that are there have these thousand yard stairs. Um, you know, and I, I've been doing, for something else, I've been doing quite a bit of research into adolescent development and like 14, 15, 16, you can fuck someone up for the rest of their life. Um, and, you know, not it's so much something as simple, which sounds so, you know, banal as not giving them enough love and affection. But if yeah. you're teaching them how to like what you talk about, this one police officer, Tyson, teaching people how to dismember somebody, because yeah. if you teach somebody how to dismember somebody when they're 14, 15, you essentially, I don't want to use the word sociopath because I think it's, it's, it's not enough of what's happening here of the true tragedy is you're teaching kids to become something else. 
And then to your point, that becomes a societal problem because what do you do? And one last thing I want to plug is, you know, the, the influence of the United States is such a huge part of what's happening in Mexico, because how do you reform a group of people that are in this situation, especially when you have this influence from the United States, which is trying to push more military, especially when it comes to like using the Mexican Marines as a strike force or um, what have you. Yeah, I mean, loads of points there. So, so a point about Tyson, I, when we had brought up in the interview, somebody I cited in in my books, I mean, it was a case which really gets me, but he was a, he was a, a state police commander in Michoacan um, who, who then came out uh, in a confession video during the Calderon era where he was captured by the federal police and they used to make these people give confessions on TV. It's kind of really weird, creepy stuff. But then he confessed and said like, yeah, I was actually an active member of the cartel and I was you know, actually not only committing murders, but actually getting these young people and training, getting you know, blooding them and getting to chop bodies up. So you, you blood them. And, and, then, and it's very much a child soldier phenomenon in that sense. And, and we, it does look and, and very similar to these child soldiers. There was a young uh, kid who was 16, um, known as Juan Pistolas um, recently, you know, Johnny Pistol, Juan Pistolas, um, who became known uh, a bit, he was, he was in, in Nuevo Laredo in a, book, in a group called The Squad from Hell, La Tropa del Infierno, this, this one cartel, and there was, um, there's these raps about him. Now, Juan Pistolas, he was a kind of, you know, become a legend. He'd been involved, he was like 13, and then Juan Pistolas, this kind of guy, and then he was, he, he was killed by the military, um, and he had his, literally had his head blown off um, by the military, which gets into your point there. Uh, but, uh, but another point about the commodification of murder is very interesting. I think with, with organized crime, you have two um, main areas of economic activity of organized crime, broad, broad areas. Now, the first one is providing a service that is not, or a good or a service that is not provided um, legally. So it can be drugs, prostitution, gambling, or killing for hire. Um, on the other side is basically stealing money, extorting, kidnapping, bank robbery, st you know, stealing, you know, whatever. Now that can also then, 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 then sell it off so that it becomes then providing a service cheaper than, than, than the formal economy because then, you know, you, you go and, and jack a truck. This happens a lot in Mexico as well. So you, you go and jack a truck and then sell all those goods a much cut a rate. You steal oil, and you say it's just it's, it's all profit. But all so so of those two things. Now, the stealing side is the one that really hurts the economy of society because if everyone's you know if, if people are being shaken down and being kidnapped and then you know why open a business? You know you're always being robbed, and that can really that you see that in Central America, where I think this has really hurt the economic development of Central America is these shakedowns by gangs. You know you have no rule of law. So you allow a, a gang in a neighborhood of, of, of aggressive young men to shake everybody down and that really hurts the whole economy. The other side actually creates econ you know, economic opportunity. So the drugs, you know, drugs is part of this, drugs, prostitution, gambling, um, they're doing that. Now killing for hire is an interesting one in that because it is an, you create an economy. People live as cigarios, they live as hitmen, it's what they do, they get money but also you, you're killing people, which, which hurts you know, society. But then there is a thing, a sense where the use of 
violence is it is part of you know when you have a failure of when you, when you have a failure of governments and its state institutions to run justice systems the use of violence is a way of the society kind of functioning and policing um the word they use often for killings is execution if they use that word in spanish so it's a weird word the guys executed him but execution gives it a slightly um you know he went and carried out an execution a death penalty um but it's like within the business somebody hasn't paid their money you know, hasn't paid their bills um but also then the, the cartels can use it for themselves offering alternative justice in their community saying we're going to kill um rapists we're going to kill um somebody who's burgling people's houses so we'll provide a security there um and then to get to your point about the militarization as a response uh and and yeah we, we've had in mexico militarization you know in all kinds of ways for the last 15 years especially so you've had the military directly used in anti-drug operations the army uh, and the marines we've also got a federal police force which is effectively militarized kind of paramilitary police um we've also now got a new police force called the national guard which is kind of a militarized police around the country we've also got local state police becoming militarized and actually active military ex-military being recruited in these state police forces and you get you know these local state units and even municipal like local city police i remember being in one in in this in the urban area of monterrey there was a, a municipality called guadalupe and being with them a few years ago and they were local city police and they were all active military run by a guy who was a general and they would had the police force got turned into a barracks and it was weird because the guy who was the the the, the police chief who was this general was also an evangelical christian and in the morning they had these weird evangelical ceremonies well or services where they would go and say and I pray that we're going to go out there and, we, and I'm going to fight the enemy we're going to fight the devil and it, and it, the devil was the cartel guys the setas guys and they go out there and and I was with them and they'd be like super gun ho there there was a shooting man they were these guys like super gun ho and like running and kind of crazy situation um so you had this 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 big militarization and also a lot of criticism i mean it's been broadly criticized um you know massively but then so you've got you know, a lot of um journalists doing reports on this i mean loads of stories about you know, and 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 efforts to make military um personnel be able to have civilian trials when they carry out these killing of maskers loads of maskers they've carried out and then exposure of those uh but then on the flip side there was a survey here in mexico um a few months ago and it found that it was like 80% were in favor of keeping the military on the street against like 12% wanted to take them off so you've got you know a difficult thing there and then you have in um some of these places where they attempt to bring the military off these areas for a while and then businesses trying to lobby the government to get them back because they're all being shaken down by the cartel want the military back so it becomes a situation if you look at it like a war a war you cannot win and a war you cannot pull out of an end either 
So that, like the Afghanistan situation, you can't win Afghanistan, you can't pull out either. You're stuck in this cauldron that keeps on going. Um, now, a solution in terms of that, I mean, I, you know, I, it, I mean, there's, there, there's three areas I, I look at in terms of solutions. I mean, one is that you have to build up police forces that work. At the same time, in the short term, you have to try and have a, a basic, you know, try and keep a basic. I mean, when you have, because I mean, right now, if there's 300,000 murders and 270,000 of them aren't solved, there's so many murders bringing that impunity takes time. But in the short time, you have to try and think about just basic, um, you know, work out what your basic targets of reducing the violence for, for and reducing the threats to regular people. Um, and at the same time, the idea of, you know, how do you restore, how do you, you change these neighborhoods where people, where the kids are becoming hitmen, um, you know, how do you, you know, change that reality of that? Um, and, and then the, the third thing is the drug policy reform and, and, and take away this, most of the money or a lot of the money from this drug black market. Yeah, uh, something I've been musing a lot about is, um, uh, you know, America creates this a massive demand for drugs, mm. which then creates the Mexican conundrum of supplying that. And then also, I, I, I'm going to ask a different question. I would like to get into this because I know your, your forthcoming book is on guns, but then America supplies the guns, which then go down. I, I heard somebody say uh, it was like a, he's a former... Um, can't remember his name, but he's a former uh, Mexican military uh, individual. And he said that, uh, you know, America supplies the guns and Mexico supplies the bodies. So you have this like conundrum of cross border economies that are circulating all of this while you're saying, like you also mentioned in your book, like you even mentioned it right here, how many different police forces there are, you know, all under different commands within Mexico, which then can lead to different fracturing where you have one that's aligning with one cartel group and another that's aligning with another cartel group. Um, and then you have all of this kind of fracturing that goes in. So really, this is like, you know, a really opaque situation with with not many good options for the next generation because of how incredibly complex this is. Um, to kind of go back to to Johnny Pistol uh, or Juan Pistoles, uh, it, it's something and I just want to just bracket for one second be before I go on a different line, which is uh, the, the corridos, the, uh, the, yeah. the Mexican um, folk songs. And, and go back to the kind of the culture of the Mexican revolution was these corridos are like these, these Mexican folk songs would travel from town to town from these troubadours. And that was a means of actually like almost giving the news of what's happening in this kind of folk way, which is something I think, you know, 1820s, you know, is not something we would imagine was getting actually, you know, news wasn't spreading by troubadour, but it still was then. Um, and kind of these glorification of, you know, this, these Mexican independent, uh, you know, individuals like Pancho Villa and what have you. And then now that's kind of got translated into creating these ballads for cartel of, you know, individuals. And I think part of the, the other thing I want to overlay on this is the complexities of who's protecting who, right? Cause the, the police may be shaking you down. The police may be lying to one cartel. Another cartel may be coming in here. So it leaves this opening. There's this cultural norm of making these songs and then it leads this opening for glorification of these individuals both because they've escaped poverty right back to the economic situation of whatever it may be um and also they could be you know becoming these uh living a a short life of you know uh 
glory as opposed to a long life of obscurity and this 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 cultural tension that is being created of we need economic means here's a really big economic means you know there's the culture right now is one of excess murder so even if it's not i'm glorifying this individual it's it's resonating with me like you said a rap song it's resonating with what my experience is um, and it kind of muddies all of this all and makes it a lot more opaque that you know i appreciate a lot of the work that you do because you you help make this incredibly complex situation of both how it got here and how what's emerging out of it a little less opaque because of all of these numerous and that's why i said geography of mexico of where it is because of the colonial rule down to where it is located just south of the border um makes a really really you know pressure cooker for all of this to kind of start popping off yeah i mean so yeah the, the, the corrido culture the narco cultura narco cultures I mean, it's very, very interesting, but like, so they, yeah, like you say, you had these songs. I mean, you say they were liked them. They literally were telling the news. I mean, you know, songs, ballads were a form of, of telling the news as they were in, you know, medieval Europe and, and so forth. So you have these, this tradition of the corrida, the ballad, you know, set up in a certain way to tell the song. And then you have these ones of, of you know, folk ballads of, of Mexican criminals going back many years. And then they start to go onto a vinyl record and you have uh, Los Tigres del Norte, who, who were a band actually who grew in California, crossed over into California um, from Sinaloa. And, and they, they started doing their you know, narco corridos. And back one very famous one uh, called uh, Contraband and Treason, Contrabando and Traición, which told this story of this character going over from Tijuana with a car with marijuana in the in, in, in the in the tires and it's a song from from, from going back in, in the 1970s and, and and then you have these new generations making much more hardcore narco corridos and some of them even called the corridos infernos the sick ballads where they'd have really violent narco corridos and and then all these people then you know it goes on to youtube and then, then people i mean then now everyone's like doing them on youtube and doing them on on the internet and then you have this this stuff like when Chapo um, escaped from prison, within hours, all these guys then start writing up these corridors and then recording them and throwing them out on YouTube. And then you know the the the, the, the battle in Culiacan, you know people you know giving out writing these corridors, so writing these lyrics to that as well. So there's this kind of crazy uh, culture there, but also it's actually a form that musicians can make money from because you have uh, drug traffickers who, who want to pay these musicians to write corridors about them. So that you have musicians who have their price of how much they charge. Oh, you know, I charge a thousand bucks or I've got up to 5,000, you know, of how, how sought after they are. And then that corrido then promotes this figure, promotes them, you know, like, uh, you know, and that, and that can even make them rise in the drug business. So yeah, you have this big narco culture. And then talking about this debate around culture, you've had efforts by Mexican politicians to try and change this. You have people criticizing you. Well, you've only got, got into the more mainstream manifestations of this. I mean, like Netflix then running um, telenovelas or, of, you know, like, uh, you know, soap operas or, or, or big TV series like Narcos. Um, and then you've got like, um, even the documentaries, uh, you know, the extent of looking at these, you know, and you know, glamorizing to the extent some of these documentaries. And 
and then you've got like uh, so this whole bigger thing of people saying well we should change that and, and, and all this narco culture we need to change that um, and that's a difficult question is that I guess one of the interesting questions of our time about culture is yes culture is very important but culture is also something that's quite organic and when you try and kind of you know culture does come up organically and when you try and might you know like from a you know we should say we should change culture to make everybody different and, and like you know so you get these debates for example about um you know banning cop programs um in the u.s or saying that cop programs of um you know now cops are bad cops are bad so we should make them look bad not glamorize cops in mexico is kind of the opposite they were saying well there, there aren't any programs about cops there was an attempt to make one um by a guy who was the uh, public security secretary actually paid finance to try and make a cop program that 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 guy who finds making it is now in, in prison in the united states on drug trafficking charges <laughs> so 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 he's got a, a bad end to that story but it, you know it's kind of why in, in mexico people don't look up to police they kind of look down on police or see them as being bad and corrupt because that's the reality but also that the kind of cultural thing you know manifests that way so it is true i think that the culture does have an effect i think maybe you can try and change culture but not you know you have had attempts you know in china you know in in the soviet union where you have a government wanting to dictate culture and shape culture from the top down and i think you probably end up with quite bland um suffocating cultures that way not the, not the best cultures um so i think you know like uh, you know whereas i think it is true that like the culture does encourage people to become gangsters then we shouldn't we're not going to really change it by trying to kill this i think we have to try and look for other ways to change the reality and let the culture come from that or just try and give try and tell stories i mean you know like if you want to try and tell stories that where the cop is the hero or, or tell a story you know or, or as a journalist try and tell a story but i try and find heroes in this situation the heroes that i can find i mean i think among mexico and not just me i think a few people have found as the kind of heroes in this can be some of these very much crusading mexican journalists who who have written about this and kind of exposed this and and and, and being killed in, in some cases and sometimes some of these kind of human rights defenders and there's these kind of stories kind of heroes about this guy who was like a priest who's giving mass in a bulletproof jacket and speaking against the cartel. Perhaps these are the kind of small heroes we can find in these stories. Yeah, I appreciate your point about, uh, I mean, culture is like language. Like you can try to influence it and you can try to force it, but it's, it's, it's an emergent quality. It's not something that is, I mean, sometimes it's intentionally crafted. I mean, um, especially like, you know, Mao post Maoist China is definitely a, you know, an appropriated culture, but, uh, it's, it's to your point is usually something that's very top down. Um, yeah, I think the best thing you could do really is just kind of recognize what it is. And, um, I, I the, the conundrum that is Mexico and kind of the drug war and all of that, it makes, it makes it for a much difficult thing, but I'm definitely going to think about what you just said right there and how to influence culture. Um, the one individual who really stuck out in your book to me that I've actually found myself thinking about, well, two and well, three, I think there was the, uh, the Sicario and Medellin where you were saying that you, you were surprised how much you liked him. Uh, I, that one stuck with me. Cause I've met, uh, 
I, I try to intentionally meet people who are on the margins. Um, and I've met many of people who are, are quite uh, complicated and uh, not necessarily the most uh, above board, so to speak. And I've, 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 I, so when I was reading that situation. I was like, oh, okay, I, I've had people like this. Um, but, uh, I think her name was Alma Herrera. She, uh, her, her, uh, son yeah. passed away in a, uh, shootout in a mechanic shop. Um, her two sons were there and her, her other son was underneath the car, uh, and just so happened to, to not get, uh, get caught in the shootout. And, and I think that that's, I'm going to be thinking about that after this is how do you influence the narrative is what I would say, right? Because these corridos are definitely, they're, re, they're a reflection. Why I like them so much, because I think art is a reflection of reality, of lived reality, right? Um, like what you were saying when you went to some of these uh, prisons and some of these, you know, former Sicarios and their art was, you know, sh- sh- shocking and striking of, you know, almost these skulls that look like they're, you know, looking into your into your soul and whatnot. Uh, you know, art is a reflection, I think, of, of the artist's reality. So, I find the corrido so interesting because of it, it shows more of the stories of what it is. But to your point, I'm going to be thinking about, which is how do you start influencing it back? And, you know, like, like I, I believe it is Alma Herrera, right? I want to make sure I'm getting yeah, her yeah, yeah. Why, yeah. I mean, I mean, she was you know, an amazing woman, um, you know, amazing, again, yeah, one of the heroes. And yeah, she was a really striking person. And there's been, a, I mean, actually there's, there's thousands of Alma Herrera's across Mexico. Um, who, whose sons have been disappeared or daughters have been disappeared and killed and have gone out. And, you know, there's various cases of people who've searched for years who, who their family members disappeared and finally found them. And, and, and some men as well, but often often women who have done this. And, and she was somebody who was particularly striking and her discourse was, was like really, really strong. But it's an interesting discussion. I mean, I guess it's where we're at. Um, it's part of where we're at in the, in the age we're living in. Um, we're kind of in the postmodern age now. So we're into kind of narrative warfare and this idea of trying to take over the, the narrative. But I'm not sure if that, if it's actually going to, that's going to, you know, the idea of, um, um, is that, if it's going to, this going to lead to really good things to come out of it? Because what, one, one of the, one of the, 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 the courses I have about that is, I mean, first it's like, we need to change realities, not just, Store, not just the store, not just how we tell them when you've got to change the realities because because like if, if you know like um you know like we've got you know some place with a thousand murders and all of these people living in a horrible situation and we could talk about it in a different way um you know but then you know is that going to change the reality there you know they've got the conditions that have to change um you know if a police force a police force has to function um a um you know the money. If the money from the drugs is not there, you know. So these are these are physical kind of realities we can look at attempting to change. We've got things now happening like drug policy reform as a as a movement that we can look at and unite to. Um, you know, there, the, so so I'm not sure if you know if, if that you know if changing the, the way we tell the stories we change. I, I you know I think look at reality. The other thing is is the idea of changing the the kind of narratives which which a lot of people are on board with. Um, this idea of getting to this idea. It becomes um, it becomes quite a um, kind of power hungry thing. I want to change the narrative to to kind of like I want to shape the narrative, and it becomes then like hating on the people who are you, t- you know telling different stories and using different words, and it's kind of, it's kind of narrative warfare. Um, and and then like this idea where you can just you know change the world by telling the stories we tell about it. 
Um, I mean, yeah, they are important. I mean, to say, tell stories, I mean, or, or, you know, if we are in this narrative warfare, tell stories that are good stories. Tell stories, whether they be, I mean, you know, we can say you want to you tell a story and you have a... I mean, the other thing is, I mean, you know, we're talking about, we're talking about I guess, we have non-fiction and fiction. Historically, going back to the, you know, like, um, Iliad or whatever, there was a, a merge between the two, but, you know, now we have non-fiction and fiction, but they're playing off each other because we've talked about you know, the drug war in Mexico, a lot of people will have their references through seeing it in Narcos. Um, so, you know, I had a kind of critique of this. I was kind of like, you know, I'm covering this and I'm seeing this horrible reality happening. and I'm covering things like, you know, with mothers crying and, and um, going to a mass grave, you know, going to, you know, covered a mass bodies being dumped, 49 bodies, which were all decapitated, all, all had their hands and feet cut off and and smelling, you know, what this, this smell of human stench, you get there. So it's kind of horrible stuff. And thinking, well, we should really, the, 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 it should, this should not be a kind of glamorous soap opera. This should be like the killing fields. This should be a horror film. Um, I guess it's difficult because people on TV want to watch this kind of certain stuff. Um, so again, how much should we care about, you know, and there were certain things I think you know where it gets a bit sick. I mean, there was a reality show um, out of Miami called like Cartel Crew, and it was then they got in like Chapo's um, wife, and then she she made like, a guest appearance on this show, and that was very much kind of reality. It was like VH1 kind of reality show, and that was a bit like Ooh, this is getting like really weird territory, and that gets to that whole thing of like mobsters' wives kind of kind of area stuff. There is an area there which I think, yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not down with this. Um, I don't like this, <laughs> I know. Um, but like, but in terms of this series, I mean, you know, I grew up watching whatever The Godfather, later Goodfellas, listening to NWA, listening to uh, Gangster Boogie, Schoolie D. I think it's the first gangster rap record. Um, you know, uh, Donnie Brasco. Um, you know, all of these, all of these films, um, Carlito's Way, Scarface. So, you know, I grew up, I can't say like, I don't like these things and, and these are an influence and, and people are gonna, I mean, I mean, criminals have always been folk heroes going back. I mean, going back to, I mean, to Robin Hood, you could look at Robin Hood, whether he was in fact, you know, I mean, you know, what was Robin Hood or he was a kind of Saxon, rebel against the Normans, but he was also, you know, his, his merry men. I mean, his merry men of, you know, were, were, were these a bunch of gangsters really at the time. Or, or, or later we have a, you know, you go through to, to Dillinger and, and, you know, Pretty Boy Floyd and all these kind of people. So there's, there's often been a folk um, adoration, a folk veneration of, of, of gangsters, outlaws, criminals. There's always been there. And is this something that's going to spend that much of our time, worth that much of our time to try and fight? Or, or the idea of, I mean, people have, you know, try and mess with the kind of have narrative warfare in kind of weird ways of um, changing the language and, and, you know, pushing a change the language to, to make so, so we're going to say that people are no longer going to be racist because we're changing the language. Um, but, but I don't know, I'm, I'm more in favour of changing the reality um, and, and letting the culture come organically a bit from this. I mean, if people... Because if, you know, people can sit in, in San Diego or, or sit in, 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 in a lot of places in the US and, and watch Scarface and, 
and probably enjoy it and you're going to enjoy these kind of dark tales. But if there's a police force which is broadly functioning and if there's opportunities for people to make money outside of the illicit economy and if there's people who have got, you know, enough people, you know, love and attention and not abandoned and, and not like draws this stuff, then, then they're not going to have that much effect. But if you have the, the other factors, then they're going to have much more effect and be kind of much, you know, part of the narrative of this thing. Yeah, definitely. Um, are you familiar with John Nash at all? The mathematician? He's a, um, if you're not John Nash. Yes. Um, get, game, uh, like game theory. Yep, exactly. Yeah. So he's like one of the, one of the pioneers of game theory. I, I like him a lot. Um, and uh, I like what you just said there about realities. Cause I, I think if we're going to set this up as a game, and I think that's the best way to do it, right? Is to understand the reality as a game. And what I mean by that is, what are the incentives, decentives, and why do, why is this emerging, right? So like, if we go to like the, let's just say violent, you know, cartel gangster rap or something like that, like that's just a art in my mind, if you were to, what's the definition of art? It's a reflection of the artist's reality, right? It's, 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 a, it's them translating and transforming them into the medium in which they chose right so you know you, you can go about it all different types of way a government policy to try to affect that but i think to your point is you got to focus on the game right and you know to go back to robin hood even right if the economic situation of those saxtons was one of affluence i don't think they'd be putting up with with robin hood very much right yeah. but if they're if they're in a series of an, if they're being oppressed or you know i i think you know, a situation that you can even say very easily, and it wouldn't take that much of a stretch of a consciousness right now in America is we're getting in a worse and worse economic situation and people are going to be getting more and more desperate. So if all of a sudden a John Dillinger pops up, you know, it's, they're going to have public opinion go with them because, well, I'm getting fucked, you know, like this guy's doing something that he can, and I don't have the guts for it. Right. Um, and it, it's, it's a natural emergent quality is what I would say from the game. So to your point, I think, yeah, ex ex definitely. You have to change the rules of the game so that it's e it's the reality on the ground isn't that, you know, an $85 to go kill somebody isn't going to be an incentive to me. One, because it's, it's I'm, I might get caught. Sure. I mean, that, that, that could be one aspect of it, but also there's other opportunities for me so that all of a sudden $85 isn't going to be, you know, enticing to me. Or um, I think the story that in your book that stuck with me the most, I don't remember the individual's name, but it was somebody who was really into cars. So I, I'm like, I have like, I have an obsession with cars. You want to talk about yeah. my wife? My wife always gives me shit about this. She's like, I, I never have to worry about you looking at other women, but as soon as a Porsche goes down the street. Um, <laughs> so uh, I have like a huge obsession with cars and I always have, um, you know, growing up without any money, I would always like work on my cars and I would buy at least like yeah. rickety cars and I would like, you know, get them to, to be able to, to take me to work or whatever. Um, and, and he was just like the way that you were describing his eyes light up when he was talking about cars and he like really liked it. You know, and, and he got into this situation where he was running drugs just from like, you know, take this car and drive it up the road. And, you know, just that's all you have to do. And he was flipping all this money. And to him, he was able to then soup up his car more. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, so he was forced, forced into this. Like if I was to lay this on a la John Nash, the rules of the game for him was I have a love. I have a love of cars and my opportunity to be able to have more, you know, get better cars. Um, you know, and he was already punching above his weight, you know, and, and his ability right there was to go and work for the cartels, which then he may have got set up as a patsy for a bigger thing. And now he's in jail, you know, and um, I think also the situation where the cops come in and say, you know, either 
you know, we're, we know what's in the car or, or maybe there's a different one, but essentially, you know, if it's, if it's weed, you're fucked, but you're, you know, you're going to get this thing. You should still talk to us. If it's narcotics, you're really fucked and you should definitely, you know, yeah, yeah. work with us. Um, it, it creates the game for these type of plays, if you will, to emerge out of it. And I think your point is, is one worth underlying, which is if you change the reality of the ground on the ground, then these emergent factors become less. So instead of focusing on, you know, stamping out, I mean, maybe like, you know, gangster rap or stamping out um, some of this glorification of, you know, if it's an artwork or, you know, um, I, you know, I have questions on on Santa Morte or, you know, any of these kind of religious, you know, aspects that are kind of coming out in these really complicated things, which um, I I think this is before we started recording, but I have quite a penchant for North and South American uh, um, Native Americans or native, you know, peoples. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, there's a lot of death cults historically throughout the region. Um, you know, and, and, you know, once you kind of get into this, this jungles of, uh, Mexico, it's when it's kind of more prevalent in those societies going back, you know, thousands and thousands of years. So to have something like Santa Marte, which is this, you know, um, saints like death, you know, uh, death God, if you will, or deity, um, kind of emerge out of it culturally makes sense to me, but also back to Robin Hood, if death is everywhere around me, you know, and it, I have to deal with death, you know, of my children, even just of me and my safety, you know, having these type of aspects of culture come out as features just seem to make more and more sense. There's a couple of, you know, fascinating points there. Uh, you brought up, uh, I mean, about the, 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 the anecdote of the, of the guy um, he was actually involved in kind of fast and furious type illegal street racing, which they call in Mexico Arrancones, where they get these people, these cars are lined up, they super up. And it's just, and it's actually very, very fast. It's all on the, it's, it's, it's not like uh, the, the movie Fast and Furious, they're doing kind of crazy races through the towns. These Arrancones are, are, are like all off the, off the break. I've actually seen them on streets in Mexico City where they have, you know, on motorbikes or on, um, in cars where they just go really fast off the acceleration. And who can like do like, you know, you know, a, a kilometer like bang. You know, yeah, we, we call them drag races in the States. Grass or drag race. So yeah, just, just straight, straight, like, which also that's what horse racing, quarter horse racing, I guess is in there. Um, but yeah, talk about the mathematicians. If you remember in the book, um, a guy you should look more into is Andres Fajardo, who was the mayor of Medellin. And he was a mathematician. And he had an interesting idea where he said, I look at this like a, a problem or a mathematical problem. So well, the problem is we've got these really poor parts of town and we've got these wealthy parts of town. The poor parts are all really separated and that's where all the cartels grow. So we have to change the reality. So, so it's not just changing the reality through uh, the idea of a communist method of, of like where we're making you know, Cuba where everyone's the same. It was like, we're going to change this where I'm going to use the government intervention. So I'm going to build the best a music conservatory and I'm going to put it in the worst neighborhood in the city. And that way, music students who study there will have to go to the worst neighborhood to study there. And that will change the concept of the neighborhood. And this was also done by this uh, guy who was mayor of Sicily, who talked a lot about this in terms of like Sicily, uh, mayor of, sorry, Palermo, Sicily. Um, and there's a lot of, uh, of stuff around the mafia there. And so people would be recruited and you have these bad neighborhoods. So it's like restoring the physical space re-changing the physical space and it doesn't take that much money um it, it's a, it's about really changing the spirit and i think 
where these projects have been done, they have had a big impact. Now, often it's hard to know exactly what's the impact from that project and what's the impact from other things happening. So Medellin was the most violent city in the world uh, back in 1993, and quite a lot more violent than Juarez was at its you know, time. It was really crazy. And you had these big projects and it really improves, but you also had truces and control from the cartel itself in reducing murder. And if you look around a lot of places where murder has gone down, it's often been the organized crime figures themselves who have been the ones controlling and policing and taking down the, dialing down the murder rate. And that's had a real effect there. Yeah, I liked that part. Uh, I'm going to check out his book um, afterwards because I liked that part in the in your in El Narco where he's talking about the best architecture should be in the, the poorest areas so that it changes the narrative. Well, it changes the thought of those areas, which then, you know, over time, yeah. kind of change it, which kind of goes back. Yeah, your perception is like, yeah, it's like, your, mm-hmm. it's like yeah, your perception, like, you know, how, how do you see the Bronx? Um, how right. do you see that? You know, like what's. Uh, how do you yeah, how do you view it? So from that point of view, it's the, it, it, you change the reality and the story changes after the reality. I mean, like so, but, but it's changing the reality first, rather than trying to just rather than just trying to change the story, and then the reality will change. So like, whereas New York in the seventies, eighties was New York's a really violent, rough city, and then it became well, actually New York's Disneyland. Um, but it was the reality that changed before the perception and then and now we're going back to this to, you know, i don't know i don't know how how bad the uh uptick in shootings is in new york right now this year we've had a big uptick in in shootings and, and, and various things there so but like but again it's a change in the reality first so you, you know you can change the story but you gotta change the conditions yeah yeah you're gonna make sure you take all the factors in um so being conscious of time i want to ask um I want to ask, maybe I can have you on again, because I want to ask a little bit more about Culiacan and some of the uh, militarization of, of um, cartels and whatnot. But um, instead, yeah. I'll, I'm a, I want to ask a question that's more pointed to the, the times of COVID, um, which is, uh, okay, let, let me back and do it this way. So um, the current president of Mexico, AMLO, uh, Andre uh, Obrador, I, I, I always get his, I always stumble his, his name, but I'll just say AMLO. Uh, he came in with a slogan of um, hugs, not guns. Um, And I want to ask very, as a segue into the kind of COVID times was, did, did he do that? Did he, he embrace more than he, you know, fired with lead Um, or has the kind of militarization and the, and the violence between police and cartels uh, is, is is rhetoric matching policy or is it too much of a, a a conundrum without a, uh, an effective strong leader? So yeah, his phrase in Spanish was uh, abrazos no balazos, so hugs not bullets, is a normal translation we do of it. Um, well, he kind of had, in, in a way, he had two slightly contradictory or kind of two notions at the same time. Um, rather than a kind of specific plan, he had two notions. One was this kind of, yeah, we're going to have peace and reconciliation, the war's over, hugs not bullets, um, prevention and this kind of thing scholarships uh no one was picarios no sicarios so like scholarships you know not hitmen and the other side was this creation of this national guard police force um, and this kind of more centralization centralization of power you had these two notions now um 
people have, have hit him a lot over the hugs, not bullets thing, because you've had, you know, you had a record year of murders in 2019, his first full year in office. Um, this year, murders have also been bad. You know, we'll see last month, the current figures look like there was a drop in murders the last month. So we'll see over the year if it ends up being a little bit less than last year. So it's not no longer record murders, or but it's still going to be a high level of murders. So he's been he's been he's been you know hit a lot, criticised a lot over this slogan when it's not really reality. In terms of his strategy, I mean, he's, so he's put resources into the National Guard, and it's the National Guard is growing. He's he then also um, uh, passed a, a decree keeping the military on the street basically for the rest of his term, which ends in twenty twenty four. But you're going to keep the military on the street till that time. Like I talked about a bit before, it's a very difficult situation with the military. I mean, that's, you know, I, I don't like militarization. I don't like the army walking around neighborhoods. But at the same time, the reality is it's difficult to pull the army off. And just to, to, to say that it would be easy to come in and say, no more military on the streets, they're all off now. In the current situation, that's a very difficult thing to do as president. Um, when you haven't got police forces that have been built, now, unfortunately, you know, the idea is there was kind of this kind of justified going back 10 years ago was like, well, we need to keep the military on the street until we have good police forces. And 10 years later, there's still no good police forces. So, so, so on, on that, on that, on that, it, it is hard. Um, you know, it, 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 they've also got now, I mean, uh, a bunch of things happening, which are, overall not particularly good um you had the this mexican general an ex-defense minister who was arrested in the united states on drug trafficking charges um cmfo was arrested in los angeles airport on a visit with his family with the indictment sent over to mexico and it was quite a lot of effort by the mexican government to come to his defense because the military really don't like the idea of their people being charged and, 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 and caught on drug trafficking charges. So, you know, defense of the military and then more reliance on the military, a lot of kind of more militarization um, rather than less. So, so whereas, you know, I do sympathize or so realistically, it's not that easy to say, take all the military off the streets right, right now, then at the same time, it's not a good idea to get more, to militarize the country more, and to kind of bring the military more into governing the country, which is the kind of way Mexico looks like it's going. Now, when you see, you know, you could say there's a trade-off between having a more authoritarian country that's, you haven't got these problems of violence. And you could say, well, China is a very authoritarian society, but at least they don't have you know, kidnappings and extortions and shootouts, all this crazy stuff happening. But we've also seen a model like in Venezuela, where that's a very militarized country, but it's also really violent and chaotic at the same time. So you end up a country with the worst of both worlds, with a violent, militarized, repressive regime, and also a bunch of crazy violence happening on the street and neighborhoods being chaotic. And, and that's what I fear. That's where I fear Mexico could go. If, you know, we don't. You know, who knows what the future might be with this? Man, I hope not. Um, so, asking a question more targeted towards COVID times has. Well, first off, has um, 
so I saw, I saw a lot of videos. I follow a lot of people that are like on the ground in, in Mexico. And one of the things I was noticing a few weeks into the COVID kind of lockdowns was cartel trucks pulling up with packages and giving people packages of like beans and rice and kind of like, you know, like toiletries and whatnot. Um, is that something that has kind of continued throughout? Like, are they continuing to support uh, local areas? Um, and as kind of a flip to that, has the violence then also increased because um, either uh, increased demand um, for drugs up up north in the states, um, or just generally uh, the um, chaos breeding opportunity for more turf wars? So on the the the, the trucks, so the, the the handouts, the the, the narco handouts, narco charity. So I went to a place where well, one of these had happened. One of these handouts had happened. And that was in a community um, in uh, the mountains, kind of hills of Mexico State. It was the closest I could find to Mexico City to drive out to find where it happened. About a one and a half hour drive away from Mexico City. Um, took me a while to find to go around and find the actual place where the handout had happened, because it was in a, in a, in a, a municipality called Bia Unión, which is a, a kind of rural municipality big for flowers, for flower growing, and they have a big market for flower growing there, which had been really hit by the whole lockdown because a lot of markets had shut down and to the, you know, so there was a lot of a lot of need there, a lot of want. But the community where it happened, this isn't, it wasn't like a super narco-controlled area as much as some places. Um, the community where it happened was kind of a little kind of ramshackle village up in the hills. And there they... The cartel had rolled up in a couple of pickups and word had gone around all the houses. The cartel's here. You know, the guys are here. They're doing a handout. And this one family I talked to, the people who went to pick up the, the goods were were two girls from the from the family, from the extended family, a 13-year-old and a 14-year-old girl. They were like, oh, you, you should go out. So they went up, queued up. So a lot of them were like teenagers. So older. They all queued up. They all got their package. And their package was like a, a transparent plastic package with, um, you know, toilet paper, rice, flour, milk, sugar, goods. But but they would like say, oh, but kind of they would like talk about the brands. Oh, they were good. No, they were good. They weren't cheap brands. They had good good quality, good brand of milk. You know, good good expensive, you know, brand of sugar. Um, and and so that was, and they video this and put these videos out on social media. Now, one of the things is that these handouts, so, so you're kind of competing with the government because the government you know, does handouts. So you're competing with altruism with the government in this sense. But one of the things is that these were only a few people. I mean, even this one municipality I went to, it was a handout that happened, got to a couple of hundred families, but in a municipality with like 50,000 people. Um, so it's quite small scale. But it got a lot of impact. Everyone knew about it. I mean, you know, you know about it in the United States because it becomes a big, interesting global story. Our oh, gangsters are handing out, narcos are handing out charity in COVID. And in Mexico, everyone, you know, everyone heard about this in Mexico through social media and then regular media picking up on the social media. It's a story that everyone heard about. So everyone heard about, oh, well, they're giving out. Well, you know, people need the stuff. And so, so, they, so they get a good, good publicity there. And then also on the smaller scale, they win support in these areas. You know, when they go back to those areas, people know oh, that it was a cartel who gave out stuff. And if they need to 
stash some things and, and, and recruit and so forth. They're gaining um, territory there. Um, in terms of the shootouts and the violence, like I said, we have to see this year, but it hasn't been a big increase in violence in Mexico this year. At least that's a kind of not as bad a sign. <laughs> so I don't want to say good sign, you're still going to have like 34,000 murders. But like, at least it's not going up exponentially like it was. I mean, you know, back in the, you know, 2008, 2009, 2010, 2011, in those years, we were covering an exponential increase in the murder rate. I mean, you get, you know, doubling the murder rates and, you know, crazy stuff over a couple of years, you know, sharp increase. I mean, because you went from like nine, 10,000 murders in a year to like 35,000 murders in, you know, in a, over a few years. So from that point of view, the COVID hasn't increased the violence, but it hasn't decreased it either. Um, so it hasn't like, you know, there'd be some hope that if everyone's locked off, you know, you know, they won't be killing each other. They're still killing each other. The cartels are still doing their thing. Um, but it's also interesting in the, in the US, there has been an increase in murders and shootings. I, don't, we're, we're still, I still want to look closely at those numbers in the US and look at, you know, I've been looking a bit at them in certain cities, I've been, you know, in Chicago, in, in New York, and so forth, but really see what, how they play out this year, because there have been an increase in shootings in the US this year, and the most substantial increase for several years. Um, but at least we haven't had that increase. It might end up with the year down a bit, or, or maybe it might be a bit higher. We'll see. That's interesting. Um, one last thing to, to kind of plug, uh, well, uh, maybe I could work these two things in, is um, you make this great point that has really, really stuck with me, which is why I made that economics comment in the beginning, is um, that the cartels have no problem running in a wartime economy. Yeah. The wartime economy does nothing to affect business. Um, and in many ways, it may actually, uh, this is my own interpretation on top of it. In many ways, a wartime economy almost bodes well for them because it's more chaos um, and it leaves them more opportunities to kind of find cracks in the, in the cement, if you will, to, you know, to, to work their way through either going across the border or, you know, recruiting people, what have you, uh, you know, having blood in the streets isn't going to affect them. Um, and the other thing is uh, that drugs are a part of a modern consumer society. Um, so, you know, you know, in your own experiences that you talk about in the UK, I can go on, I can go on a lot about my experiences as far as drugs and, um, especially, you know, with affluent people in the States, especially affluent kids and how it's really part of the culture there. Um, or, you know, my wife from Northern Indiana and, and the opium epidemic, that's just kind of ravaging that, um, yeah. you know, drugs are a part of the society in the States. And it's an emergent quality of a lot of things that, you know, we could probably go on forever about, you know, uh, loss of fulfillment and, and, and definitely to several dimensions as to why that makes it an emergent quality or reality to your point. Um, but really what that ends up doing is it creates these conundrums somewhere, right? The demand is here and how is it going to get there? And because of that demand um, and the demand is so great and the profit mar margins are so great, um, it leads to these, these quite uh, striking conundrums, like what you pointed out where doesn't matter if it's violence is up, violence is down, you know, the military is cracking down more or not. The, the economy of drugs is going to keep trucking along just fine. Yeah. So, so with the, the wartime economy thing, I was, you know, looking at what was happening with the drugs thing during these, these really crazy years of this. You had the you know, Felipe Calderon and the military against the cartels. And then you had, you know, this explosion of violence, both you know, at various levels. You know, I mean, you had the security forces, killing people you had 
Cartel people sometimes attacking the security forces. You had a lot of cartels fighting amongst themselves during all this. You had violence kicking off from all kinds of directions. But during this, you know, there's a kind of argument where at least this was, you know, hitting the cartels. But actually, the trafficking carried on right through this. So actually, you look at the seizures happening. I mean, one of the ways we can... It's hard to know the quantity of drugs being trafficked because it's, it's you know, the black market economy. But you can look at the actual seizures from the US side, how much drugs they're finding and putting on a table. And it was it carried right on through this. So you can say, well, you know, while they're... You've got cartels at war and you've got 9,000 bodies on the streets of Ciudad Juarez, but throughout that, this drugs moving. So they can factor in all this death and just keep on, on doing it. I mean, one of the things you'd hope, you know, sometimes cartels can bring down the violence by saying this is bad for business. There's too much heat coming on us. But it got to a level where they could just deal with the heat. The heat could still be happening. They could still be fighting everywhere and still be trafficking and trafficking and trafficking. Um, and in terms of yeah, I mean, the kind of big picture here, really, like, I mean, you know, drug policy reform, uh, you know, and I think this is something we should we should really look up to. I mean, you know, it's something I, I want to embrace and, and be part of a push for this, you know, this drug policy reform. It's frustrating, I feel, that we've got this conversation happening, but it's like, how do you move from the conversation to change the reality? Now, the reality is changing in terms of drug policy because we had, um, you know, two, 2012 was the first year you had a breaking point. So for a long time, everyone just said, oh, you know, the idea of drug legalization, it's a non-starter. It was a phrase, a non-starter. You can't even talk about it. It's just, it's not going to happen. And then we started having marijuana legalization. And then now it's what, 15 US states plus, you know, the District of Columbia have legalized recreational marijuana, 30 something uh, medical marijuana. Um, quite cross-partisan here. Uh, you know, quite cross, you know, you know Mississippi voted um, there in a proposition to legalize medical marijuana. So you've got both, you know, red states and blue states. And a lot of people on the right, um, a lot of people, the libertarians on the right, so they're in favor of drug policy reform and legalizing more drugs. And a lot of just regular people um, just saying, yeah, I mean, whatever now, you know, weed is not that bad. So, so there is a movement there. So you could look at, okay, can we then, you know, will it eventually lead to um, the federal government having this, this, you know, maybe even in this next, um, term of Harris Biden, we'll see. Um, but like, you know, will it then be the federal government just saying, okay, marijuana is legalized on a federal level, unless a state wants to opt out and make it, you know, like you can do that with alcohol, you can opt out of that. But otherwise, marijuana is going to be legal. But then we've got to look at what we do with harder drugs. So it's, it's tough. So you can start to say, well, we could decriminalize, meaning if we find you personal possession of anything, which they just did in Oregon, which they have done in Portugal. So then you say, well, you know, we, you, we're going to find you with some cocaine. We're not going to put you in a prison or really punish you for having personal drugs because, you know, you're hurting yourself by taking those drugs. You're hurting your family. But, you know, it's, it's about medical treatment. It's about rehabilitation. We're going to punish you and put you in prison, which only ends up hurting the family more having these small amounts of drugs but that still then gets to what do we do about selling of these drugs because decriminalization is only halfway because you could still then how do people are selling heroin people are selling um cocaine people are selling crystal meth now that's a lot harder you know we're we going to allow people to sell give licenses to people to sell heroin 
that's very very hard so what how do we then you know one, one thing is like having a lot of resources into rehabilitation and a lot of resources and maybe the idea of things like methadone programs there's other programs there's also other substitutes where you give people um, legally manufactured the government give them legally manufactured alternatives to these drugs um, and, and that can work as well but you know the idea is to, be to reduce the amount of people spending money because you know the 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 us by one estimate there's 150 billion dollars in the us spent every year on illegal drugs you know 150 billion dollars is a lot of money and that's pumping down to these organizations so how can we kind of come to terms i think philosophically it goes from a movement from the you know going back to the richard nixon idea of the war on drugs you know, he talked about abolition he said well, you know well, i can abolish drugs and you know, there will be no drugs in american life there will be no heroin it won't exist and, and, and 40 years later, and, it, and it's interesting, uh, next year, 2021, will be 40 years, or no, 50 years, sorry, 50 years, half a century. So that's a good time, I think, to try and really get this conversation to the forefront. 50 years since Richard Nixon declared the war on drugs. Now let's talk about this. Let's talk about it. Not only talk about this, let's change this. You know, let's like move forward uh, and actually say, well, you know, we, if we're all agreeing, if loads of us are agreeing, it, it doesn't work anymore. If this is actually something which is, which is, you know, and, and this could reduce, you know, this could connect to, um, you know, police killings, a lot of them are to connect to drug crimes. If you can de-escalate the whole drug prohibition violence connected to it, enforcement connected to it, that could, you know, lead to a lot of things. I think there is, a, I'm not saying I'm totally optimistic it will happen. There is a chance it can happen. Yeah. And, um, I, yeah, there's a lot there. That's a good point. Cause I think, I think accepting the, this is kind of a, a theme here is accepting the reality that these drugs are here. These drugs are a part of it. And, you know, we can either continue to go through this punitive means and, and kind of end up in more of an escalation of where we are, because also a great, a great story that you tell in that, in the book is there's a section where you talk about crystal meth and there's, you know, you, you create this fictitious, worker in Oklahoma or Nebraska who is working at Walmart. And when they get off their shift, they go and buy, you know, $20 of crystal meth. Well, American dollar and buying power then goes across the border, which means that that's actually an increased buying power South. So the more the peso falls, the more that American dollars actually, you know, worth more and can go farther. So it's actually fueling, you know, more because of, you know, American economy on top. So, you know, having a having a monopoly on the American drug market is an incredible amount of money, especially with what that buys you back home to me in order to kind of self-perpetuate this cycle. Um, so, you know, it, changing, you know, I, I think accepting the reality that, you know, there's this, this great book called the man who knew it's actually an autobiography or it's about not autobiography, but it's a biography of Alan Greenspan. And there's a section in it in which it goes into the creation of Nixon's drug policy as a means of political theater. And he wanted to do it to, to in order to create this center that would then create him into the office is he actually crafted his own political campaign of this drug policy. So I'm sure he actually believed a lot of it because he was kind of a conservative son of a bitch, um, but he did it for political means. So I think accepting the reality of which there's a good portion of this war on drugs that was political theater, but then there's also an enormous portion of suffering and this economic conundrums that are getting created from both the buying power and kind of the self-perpetuating situation in Mexico. You know, I, I think starting with accepting that reality and then saying, okay, well, we have to change something here. And if that's 
changing the bug, the drug policy of saying, instead of giving a billion dollars towards enforcement, you know, some money goes towards enforcement, but then a larger amount, like in the Port- Portugal model, larger amount goes to rehabilitation centers or, you know, awareness. Cause I think once again, you know, I, I was thinking about this and uh, there was a cocaine dealer that I became friends with in college who was an incredibly rich white kid. Right. And he was, he, he saw it as a business opportunity. Right. And he got into it, not realizing that probably what his money and what his becoming a connection like that, you know, in, in, you know, the school was actually fueling back home. So I think there needs to be an awareness of what is happening in Mexico and the abject suffering and murders and kind of the conundrums, you know, that they fall into as well as the, the means on the ground If the demand isn't going anywhere. We need to do something about the demand. Um, and, and I also, I thought your piece about the, the 50 year anniversary of the war on drugs was awesome. Um, I thought it was really great. I loved the way that you linked out kind of the, the history of policies and, and initiatives and kind of the failings really, um, to use my words. Uh, it, I was curious and we can, we can end on this is what, what was the feedback to that? Because on, I never use Twitter as a means of a litmus test because it's mostly just people who are crazy, yeah. but I did not, I, it, it was, I was surprised because once again, in your, in your book, you use that Victor Hugo quote of what's the most powerful force in the world. And it's an idea whose time has come. And you know, you wrote, I think it got published in like 2010 or 2011. So recreational marijuana wasn't passed in, in California yet. And you say, you know, like the pendulum can swing back. So let's not get too excited yeah. here that uh, this can go forward. So I was wondering with, you know, the anniversary coming up and, and also that piece, what the reaction was. Yeah. So, so I, I had a good reaction to, you know, a lot of emails, you know, people telling me that they, that, that was good. And they sympathize with this and, and a lot of connections however a lot also a lot of it was from people already there already believe this and a lot of these kind of um uh drug policy reform groups already kind of picking it up um i think it's still a it kind of surprises me or you know there's still not everybody saying this you know like now because it's like one of these things that like and i guess it's it's um one of the frustrating things of our time is that we've got like a lot of people when we've got everyone talking all the time to this kind of white noise and, and, then, and then not society really struggling to move in any kind of direction, positive direction. And, and, and my argument is like, this is something we can agree on and move on. This is not like, um, you know, because you know, there's a lot of energy going to these ideas of things like abolishing the police and these kind of things, which I don't think are realistic ideas. Um, you know, I, I don't, you know, I think police reform is, is a realistic idea. I don't think, um, abolishing the police is a realistic idea. Um, uh, you know, it's gonna—I don't, I don't think it's gonna happen anyway. I don't think it's gonna happen um, for a start. Um, whereas abolishing the war on drugs is something which can, you know, start and you know, happen. I feel it can make a big difference. I think it's realistic. So it kind of—I um, uh, hope this thing can pick up steam. I say I've got a hope. I'm not, you know, not. You know, enormous, not saying it's going to happen. Or, or my hope is like, you know, huge. But there is, a, I mean, we, we are seeing a reality change. So, like, I say, I mean, Oregon passing what it did ten years ago—that would have been unthinkable. So we have had this march forward. Uh, and like, you know, if if next year or the year after or the year after that, the federal government said oh, we're going to, you know, marijuana is legalized, we're going to, you know, we, or we, you know, we kick down, you know, the the the, the we're repealing the prohibition laws of marijuana on a federal level. That wouldn't be that surprising, would it? It wouldn't be like that, you know, be like, okay, right. Here's, we've already got this industry happening now. You've already got people making it 
legally and then selling it across state lines and stuff anyway. So, um, so yeah, so, so there's, there's hope there. I mean, it's up to, I guess up to us to change things. The future is unwritten. Um, maybe this is going to take, no, maybe it's going to take a while. That's, I guess one of the things is that these changes take time, but that's the same, any kind of big changes. I mean, like when they, I don't want to make this comparison too much because it's a very, very different issue. But when they abolished slavery, it wasn't like it was just abolished at one second. It was a process that took decades to happen. I mean, you know, they, they passed laws to abolish it in the British Empire. And then actually then they still kept there for years. And they, you know, there's a whole bunch of you know, process that took a long time. So kind of ending the, 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 the model we've had about you know, it, it's a gradual process. And, you know, I was kind of, I hoped it would be faster. I kind of had, you know, when, when it was kind of like, when we went back to, you know, 2012, the, oh, bang, you know, when, when marijuana got legalized, and I remember that happening in, in Colorado and Washington State in 2012. And I was like, oh, wow, this is huge. And writing stories about this, and people were kind of, you know, weren't really following it that much. It's like, oh, you know, we, we come up for another stuff. But there was a change there, then Uruguay legalized, then we had Canada legalized now, and Mexico's on the point of legalizing marijuana as well. So we've got this kind of gradual, now let's say pendulums can swing back. Uh, we've now got weird things happening in the United Nations uh, and at the international level where, you know, going back, it was America which brought the war on drugs to the international level. Uh, actually, actually going all the way back before Nixon, going back to the 1910s, you know, there was the United Nations, you know, there was a, you know, before the United Nations, there was like, it was like, nations get together then to talk about it it was pushed by the united states but now we've got other countries who are more conservative on drugs china nigeria russia who are the kind of block being more conservative on drugs in their countries um and maybe they you know maybe in china they can kind of enforce um drug policy more it's a very authoritarian country so they you know, maybe can you know do the they could they could um shut down covid in china in a way we couldn't in, 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 in the West or in Latin America, you know, at all. Um, but I think, you know, at least, you know, in, in, in the West, um, we have to come to terms with people are taking drugs. You know, we, we, we don't, we don't want to bring the China model. <laughs> over we don't want to incorporate the China model as a model of like, let's create a big authoritarian thing, you know, like, um, uh, let's accept that there's going to be a certain amount of drug use. Um, I do think, um, I guess to end on this, I do think, uh, I mean, a couple of things is we do need to take law enforcement seriously, not so much of drugs, but of violent crime. Um, and, you know, Latin America is suffering this huge problem of violence, criminal violence, which really, really hurts people. Um, and I don't know if in, in the United States and in Europe, in the United States particularly, there is a return to violence and there could be a, a time of more violence in the United States in the coming years and more criminality and, and a rise of more of this kind of organized crime things happening there. Um, but uh, but uh, kind of last point, as well as that, in terms of, of, of drug rehab, I mean, there's a real issue. I mean, it's kind of a kind of global issue, but particularly I think in the United States, in Europe, in Latin America, um, a real issue is with like mental health, um, real issues, uh, and that's the way we've come to of societies. Um, I think the breakdowns of communities, the breakdowns of families, 
uh, and not necessarily just the nuclear family, but the breakdown of connections, of strong connections with loved ones, which is very important, um, and of communities as well. Um, and this replacement of online communities, which is very bad for mental health generally, rather, rather than good, rather than you know having your loved ones and your friendships, which really help you um, mentally and help you, you know, you you have these kind of like online communities, which is just you know a bunch of kind of bullying and stuff. So so that's something which is very important. I think connected very much. I think if we look at the OPE oil crisis in the United States, you have to look at the mental health crisis in the United States as well. So that's something we have to look at as societies um, and, and find ways around that. I mean, my um, colleague, uh, Johan Harry is big on writing about this, yeah, Connections, his latest book, and Chasing the Scream. And he, he looks a lot about that, which I think is a very important topic. Yeah, my wife actually brings it up a lot because um, addiction's a, a, a passion area of hers. And she, she, she quotes Johan Hari a lot in saying, uh, what he says is the opposite of addiction is connection. Yeah. And I think that that is like the most succinct little stanza that I could say about that because, and even what you said, like the increasing, you know, social, you know, digitization of our society and, and it, we're doing it in these platforms that are selecting for outrage and selecting, you know, for the things that are more base to keep us on the platform, which then just, you know, affects a society and reflects back onto it. So I think that's a great point to, to end on is, you know, drugs are, unfortunately here to stay and that's because back to the point of being an artist is it's a reflection or the reality in which they're kind of emerging from right which is decreased fulfillment decreased uh connection decreased stability and, and that's kind of what ends up coming out of it way to go i second that one <laughs> okay <laughs> all right thanks yon i'm gonna i'm gonna stop the recording i appreciate yeah. it If you'd like to find us on your social media platform of choice, sign up for a mailing list to be the first to know about episode drops, know about upcoming guests or opportunities to ask questions and provide suggestions, please visit us at bandwidthpodcast.com. And of course, if you like what you hear, please follow, comment, or subscribe to the pod, however it is that this is getting to your ears.